0: Hello and welcome to the next episode of the podcast, a cannabis podcast for budding enthusiasts. This episode was brought to you by Seeds Here Now, your number one seed bank with not only a guarantee on germination, but also on satisfaction, as well as 420 Australia and organic gardening solutions. If you go anywhere else to get your organic gardening products or, you know, tastefully subtle weed-inclined shirts, you're kidding yourself. On this episode, we're joined by the man, One Eye, who's going to give us the lowdown on so many different things. I don't think I could even squeeze them all in. Hope you're ready for a good one, guys. Here we go. Alrighty, so a big welcome and thank you to the Oregon hero himself, One Eye. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing fantastic. Heavy days, how are you? I'm doing great. Good times.
0: So, first question I like to ask everyone what was your first experience with cannabis?
1: Um, wow, that goes back uh, many years for me. Uh, believe it or not, this is going to sound really strange, but uh, when I was growing up uh, in Virginia Beach, Virginia, uh, I had a group of friends, a few guys who were about four years older than me, and uh, they were pretty much my surfing buddies. Uh, so they were, you know, all able to drive. You know, long before I was, so getting down to places like Cape Hatteras was uh, uh, quite, created quite an advantage for me of having these older guys. But one of the other things that came along with the uh, surfing capabilities were the opportunities to see some cool music and also playing Dungeons and Dragons of all things. So the summer that I turned 12 years old after a uh, game of Dungeons and Dragons, one of my older friends, uh, pulled me aside and said, Hey, you know, if we're going to go out to the porch here and smoke a joint. Uh, would you care to do so? And, uh, you know, you got to remember this is roughly 1986. The, uh, just Na- say no campaign was very much, uh, part of our existence So I was pretty hesitant in the beginning, but I caved eventually after a little bit of peer pressure. And uh, that, you know, uh, I can't remember, I don't remember that I really got too high off that first joint, but I knew it was something that I was willing to do again. And over the next few years, uh, primarily, Getting high with friends and smoking joints and taking bong hits, and all that good stuff. Uh, of course, as I got older, that the, uh, frequency certainly increased. <laughs> but uh, you know, not a, not a, uh, it was a groundbreaking moment for sure because it certainly opened my eyes to a, a whole new world of, and way to experience the world for sure.
0: And so, how did you transition from that to a grower? You obviously. Because, you know, you sound like you're quite apprehensive. So I imagine it would have taken a little bit for you to really get headfirst in, so to speak.
1: That's very, very true. Uh, being the, you know, Growing up during that era, it was uh, you know, very taboo and uh, certainly wasn't uh, wildly accepted by the masses. But there was a group of us, and we we certainly you know kept to our kept to ourselves and kept to the uh, stay dedicated to to the smoking of cannabis. It really wasn't until uh, my I don't know eleventh or twelfth grade year in high school that my uh, a friend of mine and I decided to sprout some seeds and put them outside and see what we could do. Uh, this was the beginning of several failed attempts. In, uh, you know, in in the hometown where I grew up, it wasn't really until I went off to college uh, in the early 90s that I decided to be a bit more committed to the growing cause. And it really just started with cracking bag seeds, uh, you know, as new things came through. Back then it was all kind bud, of course. And. Uh, we certainly got to learn some of the different names of strains, but we were just more or less cracking random seeds, primarily outdoor, but there was some early indoor cultivation in closets while I was in college. Uh, And, you know, back then we were really winging it. There was no growth store that you could – there were growth – you know, there was a couple of hydro stores – within an hour's drive of my college, but you certainly weren't going there for any advice during that era. So we really had to just kind of figure it out the best we could, maybe a couple of articles in High Times here or there, but uh, the beginnings were very rudimentary at best. But we did what we could, and you know there were some good things that turned out of some of those early gardens, but uh, the success rates were not very high.
0: Yeah, and so who were the people that you were looking up to during that time? Was there anyone? Like often we hear people like Ed Rosenthal and, you know, the guys who were around back in those days. Did you look to them at all or you were really just out in the ocean on your own?
1: I mean, you know, as far as breeders were concerned uh, or expert growers or whatever, the only access that I really had to that world was via the high times magazine. So people like Neville, for example, fascinated me, uh, and his whole story of lore and legend, but there weren't a lot of, uh, gurus to look up to that we were really that aware of. It wasn't until later on, you know, after college of late nineties that I, uh, that I, you know, started looking up to some folks who were making impacts in the industry. And of course, early on, you know, Jack Herrera comes to mind. He was someone, and I, I volunteered with Normal uh, when I, w- one year when I was in college and was exposed to the emperor wears no clothes and, uh, and Jack's whole kind of pursuit of uh, legal, you know, why legalized cannabis is such a good thing and why hemp was so important. So, yeah, you know, between you know, in the very early days, uh, Jack Herrera would be one, uh, you, know, uh, you know, popular individual, and then Neville would have been the other.
0: So, knowing what you know now, if you had to mm-hmm. guess what the origins of a lot of that kind bud and, by extension, the seeds you were getting from it, what do you think that stuff would have been predominantly?
1: So, well, a couple of them, one of them, in fact, I can attest to specifically, and that would have been the uh, Afghani number one, the, which was so lovely, donned the Virginia Beach Afghani. And this was the first kind bud that I was exposed to when I was in high school. And it, you know, it, it set kind of the gold standard for me in those very, very early years. There were other, you know, of course, skunk, cro- skunk You know, skunk was still around then, the real roadkill skunk. Uh, there were some northern lights that would pop up here and there. We would see uh, blueberry from time to time. And then, you know, as the years progressed into the early 90s, I started to get exposed to more Uh, more of a variety I I went to school uh, around the DC area in uh, northern Virginia and uh, we would see things like G13 and Pluton and now we would see NL2 and NL5 and NL5 Hayes Crosses uh, Black Domina Uh, as you get deeper into the mid 90s the the 4-way which is now known the cut is known as the Fairfax 4-way that one just about changed my life. And I was, uh, so this was right around uh, 96 now that I was fortunate enough to be in close proximity to the group who was responsible for producing those very early uh, four-way, the Fairfax four-way plants. And that strain, when it hit our scene, just dominated the scene and it became the standard by which we judged everything else. And it's really the strain that got me into eventually exploring the whole concept of breeding and creating new strains. Uh, I kind of set myself out on a mission to and of meet or beat the four way, <laughs> which was a daunting task at that part of my career. But uh, you know, we eventually got there after several years. Uh, so <clears throat> it was uh, it was definitely you know, a a, a game changing uh, strain, and and many others you know followed after that. We eventually got into the the white line, so the white widows and white rhino, uh, the great white shark. Some of those come to mind. Uh, those, now we're getting a little deeper into the '90s, uh, and then, of course, you know, it wasn't until I moved out west that I actually was exposed to you know, things like OG Kush. And of course, you know, we're getting later into the two, you know, mid-2000s at this point. But you know, we, we, we had, I'd say, when I was in that Northern Virginia area, there. You know, just due to location, there were you know there was quite an interesting scene going in and around that area with with pretty high quality cannabis. Um, you know, never mind the Canadian influence, uh, which was certainly present at that time. Uh, but we we really sought to source the best domestic that we could find at that time, and and we're attempting on the side to produce you know, uh, some, some decent cannabis as well.
0: <laughs> yeah, wow. So many different avenues we could jump off into. The first thing that sure. comes to mind, though, <laughs> mm-hmm. you must have been friends with Mr. Bob Hemphill for quite a while then.
1: Yes. <laughs> we, we've known each other for, a couple, oh gosh, going on a couple, probably a couple decades now. Uh, we've definitely uh, gone and seen some fish shows back in the day together. Uh, it's really interesting You know, he and I and this will this will kind of this will be a great example of how kind of deep the code went back then. So, you know, back in those days, in the early days, especially back in Virginia, you know, neither one of us ever once had the conversation about growing, uh, even though we were both actively cultivating. And probably knew each other were, but it was just so tight back then that you just didn't even, you know, it was just, you just didn't want to breach the subject because you didn't want someone else to really know. Um, But, you know, he has forever, you know, since those days been an amazing, just incredible, incredible cultivator. I have a lot of respect for not only his ability to preserve genetics and keep them over the years, but also as a cultivator, he is really spectacular in my opinion.
0: Yeah, agreed. And I mean, if we just touch back to a point you made yourself, the (laughs) VA scene, you know, the more you learn about it, the more it seems like this place was like the mecca of weed back in the day. What do you think contributed to being such a (sighs) hotspot? You know, that's that's a really good question.
1: I think there was a desire, you know, at that point in time, at least for the circle of folks that I ran with, uh, which overlaps a lot of these other, you know, Virginia breeders and growers, um, there was a need for self-sufficiency. You know, Um, you didn't always want to rely on uh, what was coming in next on what load or whatnot, you know, and we certainly didn't want to all sit around and, and have to consume, you know, Canadian. So I think, um, you know, there's a lot of rural country, especially in Southwestern Virginia, uh, Floyd County comes to mind. That was always a Mecca for, uh, just incredibly grown cannabis, uh, over the years, um, but, you know, you find even in the Richmond scene, you know, there's there's a lot of a lot of really important, in my opinion, you know, important breeders and some of these kind of you know, gurus of the industry that all hailed from, you know, the Dominion State. And it's um, to me, it's quite remarkable. Um, I don't know. Maybe it was something in the water. Who knows? But there it, I, I you know, for us, it came out of self-sufficiency. We didn't want to have to rely You know, always on others. So we set forth, you know, to to do our own thing and produce our own cannabis, even if it was small amounts. And a lot of it, you know, was just head stash. We weren't at that time necessarily, you know, all producing for production on a you know certainly not on a commercial level or anything close to it. But it was always. It was always pleasant to know that you had a nice head stash of, you know, nicely grown cannabis with, you know, great flavor and stupendous highs and you didn't have to rely on Mexi Brick or Canadian. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, and, and it really, I mean, it just, uh, but but your point is, uh, and I think about this a lot, about, you know, how many of these great individuals have um, hailed from from the home state.
0: Yeah, it's kind of perplexing to see it all happen. I think VA in New York is where a lot of the best stuff and best breeders have come from, in my opinion. And I'm sorry to anyone who's not from there, if you're a butthurt. But um, any, anyway, another thing you brought up, which is really interesting. Actually, no, sorry. I want to quickly ask this one. Did you get any of yeah. that uh, VA Super Skunk?
1: Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, the Super Skunk was definitely you know uh, available, and I do remember it um it just it, it's so strange you know as soon as you talk about as soon as we got into that four-way era <laughs> it really became difficult for uh, other varieties to be memorable just because we kind of it's just because it was some, some of these things were stopped at but the va uh, super skunk is fantastic um i i you know there's not enough nice things that i could say about that strain and i you know I applaud anyone who pursues it during this era, because yeah, okay. it's uh, you know it's a, it's a, it's a special strain.
0: So another one with the VA tag in the name, you referenced mm-hmm. it, the VA Afghani. I think what's mm-hmm. interesting about this one is it's actually making quite a comeback. Um, notably, Duke Diamonds worked into mm-hmm. some of his mm-hmm. more recent lines. I think what's interesting about this one is for the people who haven't seen or smoked it in real life, I think it would really catch you off guard that's that's the way i felt it was nothing like what i expect like didn't smell like what i expected the high was nothing like what i expected like i knew it was going to be good but it was like a d- how do you mm-hmm. feel about that one because it's it's really I, I think it's the real anomaly and i'd love to hear europeans on a- mm.
1: so that that's a great one the virginia beach afghani is is a standout for for me for one specific reason and that's the the flavor Um, It almost has a, to me, almost like a minty note to it. And there is something so very distinct about it that it's, you know, it's certainly one of those strains that if you smoke it once or twice, you'll know it forever. Um, The plant's aren't highly, you know, and from what I remember, you know, and of course, going back many years to the Virginia Beach days when our friends were cultivating it, you know, it was all closet cultivated. So these were smaller plants, they didn't yield an incredible amount, but they, uh, but but what came out of that was, you know, an incredible high. Uh, To me, it is uh, almost, you know, mind numbing. And a flavor that is just remarkable. I mean, it does have that kind of slight ganny kind of hash plant taste to it. But like I said, there's something almost a minty note in it that makes it unmistakable every time. And uh, I was, I actually at at the Emerald Cup this year when I saw that, uh, Duke Diamond was breeding with the Ganny skunk, with the Granny skunk or whatever. I was so excited to see that back. I couldn't resist, you know, and certainly grabbed some for myself. Uh, To me, that's, you know, an homage to the old days. And uh, it's, like I said, that Ganny is, there's just nothing like it else in the world.
0: Yeah, definitely. I think the one thing that I picked up on for me, at least, was that mintiness you speak of. I feel mm-hmm. like it's it's one of the many components to that Jack Harrah mm-hmm. flavor. Like, mm-hmm. cause that, that's what I found really weird. Like, I thought it was really one of the more tropical, like, not maybe not tropical, but you know what I mean? It had mm-hmm. had a lot of body to it for an Afghani, and it, it just took mm-hmm. me back. Um, and the other thing I found was the high. It's like, I'm just going to quote Dookie. He said, it's it mm-hmm. almost like paranoia inducing It's so, so mm-hmm. strong. Yes, Which, yes. <laughs> it's not typical of an Afghani. People think, you know, like strong indicas would do the opposite. They'd chill you out. hmm <laughs> No, not that one. It is uh, It is unmistakable. <laughs> yeah. Uh, one, one that hopefully everyone gets to try. The final thing I want to loop back on quickly, mm-hmm. you mentioned mm-hmm. the Northern Lights and the Blueberry being as some of the other ones around at the time. Mm-hmm. Out of all those ones that you do think back on, what's the most memorable for you?
1: Uh, G13.
0: Okay, we don't hear a lot of that anymore. What What was it about the G thirteen that you liked? Uh,
1: that's another one. You know, the real D thirteen, uh, and it's 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 a complex one to try to describe. It is has a very distinct taste. I really enjoyed the high. We the G thirteen that we were getting back then actually was coming from San Diego. Um, it was. It just – you know, I'll tell you what. So I, I got a bag seed of it. I think this is why I like it so much. So I got a bag seed out of it and grew a plant of it outdoors in northern Virginia. And it was the only plant I've ever grown in my life to actually have the magenta pistils, which when it dried, when the flower was you know dried and cured out – so G13 in itself has that kind of um, almost – grayish-green tone to it to me. Uh, it has a lot to do with the trichome coating. But if you can imagine that kind of t- grayish-green color with uh, coated in trichomes and these beautiful, like, purple hairs that are interlaced in it, it just it, it turned out to be one of the most beautiful flowers I've ever grown. Uh, and then the, the, the just the complexity of flavor of G13 is another one that... Uh, and, and that's what I'm... It's, those are the really... The, the genetics that really get to me are the ones that have multiple layers of flavor you know something on the inhale something else on the exhale and then those flares continue to evolve even after the exhale so for me the standout strains going even going back in time are the ones that had that same quality and g13 certainly has that same quality
0: yeah okay and so i mean you just touched on it you said you popped a bag seed What was the first strain you ever grew? Wow. (laughs) Let's
1: see here. So, let me think about that. That is... So there were some seeds that we had gotten out of what was supposed to have been... Back then it was just called purple haze. Who knows really what it was. (laughs) Um, Those were probably some of the first seeds that we cracked where I actually had successful plants. Um, And those were actually indoor. Uh, And then there was also a Durban poison back then. But that that wasn't bag seed. That was actually purchased from a friend of mine who went over to Amsterdam and brought some seeds back. Um, So there was some Durban poison back then, there was the purple haze. Um, There was once a bag seed from a blueberry, uh, let's see, we scored a blueberry in 95 after a fish show outside the Spectrum in Philadelphia. And there was a blue, you know, uh, so, and you know, these, who knows what the actual crosses were that's, you know, that's the, that's the whole fun of bag seeds, right? Back in the day is you knew pretty much what the female was, but had no idea what created the seed in that female. Of course, you know, nobody was sending uh, lineage information with, with the, with the cannabis that we were receiving. So there you know, I, I have to say, you know, just going back, I, I'm pretty sure there's the Purple Haze and then the Durban. Those would have been the very first ones that were successfully grown. And then after that, um, you know, I wish I wish I back in those days I kept better notes, but <laughs> I didn't. Uh, we weren't certainly thinking about recording anything on paper back then. That would have been way too risky. Yeah, uh,
0: all too common of an answer. Don't <laughs> worry. Sure. <laughs> so you referenced that the four-way was one of the mm-hmm. things which kind of inspired you to start breeding. With that mm-hmm. being said, what was your first ever breeding project?
1: So the very first one, and I'm going to s- kind of skip to the second or third because it's the one that really made a difference. So there was an NL5 haze that I had at the time. And then there was uh, some uh, big bud and there was a big bud male that was used to pollinate the NL5 haze. And this would be the first cross. And, And, you know, of course you have to keep in mind, bear in mind here, these are names that were given to strains. And in those days, I have to be very blunt here. It's anybody's guess what it really was. You know, uh, unless it came out of a seed pack, it was very hard to validate anything. I can't tell you how many you know flowers we saw that were called skunk that certainly weren't skunk or even for that matter, you know, northern lights that weren't truly northern lights. It was was just kind of blanket labels given to whatever looked good. So but that that first very successful one was NL5 big uh, NL5 Hayes Big Bud Cross. And that's actually the one that I had sent back to uh, Virginia to a friend of mine who gave me kind of the two thumbs up, via, you know, as good as the four-way. Um, and from that point forward, I really didn't want to slow down the process once I got the the gold stamp approval from my buddy. And from there, there were, um, so I started playing around with Silver Pearl in the late 90s, and another strain called KC36, which was uh, from KC Brains in Brazil. And I, the Silver Pearl I had was a cut a female that was from a Sensi Seed Bank. And KC Brains' pack of seeds that I got provided me a in very interesting male. And so I worked with that one in the late 90s and developed a strain that I called Proof, and the proof was a, due to the silver pearl content, it was a strain that finished up in about 47 days. Uh, and it was just to prove, and we called it proof just because to prove that things didn't have to go eight or nine weeks. So, <laughs> bit <of time> cheaper. <laughs> yeah, a little bit, yeah, just a little bit. And the proof was something that I worked with, um, you know, that's the only genetic that I've ever taken to an F3. But it became also a foundation that I have built off here over the years. Whenever I want to induce a short flowering period, uh, I can generally, you know, crack one of the. And at this point, the proof seeds are are somewhat homogeneous. Uh, they're very predictable in what they'll actually. Um, uh, grow out to. So if I have a, you know, a good male donor, then I can, you know, throw that onto a proof female. And if I want, you know, if I've got a good proof uh, male, then I can throw that onto something else. But uh, that one, that, that, that cross was one that made me very happy for a period of time. And then, you know, as soon as we get into the early 2000s, really uh, right around 04, 05, that's when more breeding happened, and I, you know, there, most of the breeding that I have done in the past has been intentional S1s. There have been some true breeding projects, but those are a little bit more recent. Um, and you know, I, sometimes S1s get a bad rap, and some you know, between, from some folks. But I think you know, most of the, some of the greatest genetics we've seen on this planet are generally a result of S1 situations
0: yeah that's definitely a topic i'd love to get into in just a moment but i just want to quickly draw you back you reference casey brains it's a really yes. really kind of obscure breeder the thing mm-hmm. i am most interested in him is is that well you know the collective whoever it was or whoever they were Essentially, Mm -hmm. they're notable because they never released the information around any of their strains. And yet, at the time, they were still regarded as quite really good, like, you know, very good breeders, essentially. And I just thought, it's so interesting. It's such a polarization because you could never be successful in today's market doing that. And yet, it just, I guess it goes to show like it wasn't a concern back in the time. Right.
1: Uh, You know, lineages were... As far as I remember, you know, lineages weren't something that we were overly concerned about in the early days. I know that, uh, you know, the KC 36 and I've, you know, years gone past, I've, I've gone and tried to look up as much as I could on it, but and I haven't really been able to find much of anything. Cause, you know, he's at that, at that, in that era, you know, he's simply giving the label to the strain of the, you know, during the, uh, during whatever, however old he was that year. So the 36 is the strain he created when he was 36 years old. Um, but, yeah, you know, the, the, that was not necessarily something that, you know, even that I was even aware of that people were really that concerned about back in the day uh, is, you know, what, what is the lineage here? More, you know, more important to folks was you know, what kind of flower is this going to produce? <laughs>
0: And so with that being said, do you think that a lot of the stuff was quite inbred or do you think it had like a diverse variety within it?
1: You know, I think that really has a lot to do with the commitment level of the breeder back then. I mean, you know, you can take someone as certain, like someone like DJ Short, you know, he's, he's... Stabilized his blueberry line was an F4, F5 across the one that's touted now. And, you know, it's a, it's a predictable strain at this point. And, you know, someone who like that has worked with the genetics over year and year and year to try to kind of homogenize the outcome. However, then there were also, you know, a lot of F1s that get out there in the world, and you're going to see a ton of diversity from those. So I think it kind of goes back to the breeder and how important it was to that particular breeder to stabilize that genetic um, for you know for market for you know to put it in, to put it in the market I you know I I don't really think that you know it it, it had anything to do with you know the company, so much as you know, just 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 the breeder, just you know, and and how uh, committed they were to trying to create stability in the strain. I mean, the further you get, you know, the F one, two, three, and four, and five, and the deeper you get into that, certainly the more stable the genetic comes, and of course that generally reduces the diversity as well.
0: So something you referenced earlier, uh, just a second ago, in fact, was uh, Sensi. Those were some of the seeds that were popular at one mm-hmm. point when you mm-hmm. were buying. You also mm-hmm. referenced Neville, so golden segue mm-hmm. for me. This is a bit of a weird question, a little bit controversial, but at the same time, it's so obvious. I can't believe that it's even like a bit of a weird thing. You know, since he went to shit at some point, why do you think mm-hmm. that happened and who's responsible? <sighs> you know,
1: I really feel like since he kind of took the fun out of genetics and I think a lot of that had to do with trying to make their seed outcome more marketable based on what they thought people liked. Um, you know, the, the first genetic that certainly comes to mind here is something like the skunk. You know, uh, every, we all kind of agree that since he's the one that added sweetness to skunk one, uh, that original roadkill skunk wasn't a, you know, wasn't a sweet tasting strain at all. Um it was kind of offensive to, in, in some respects, um, but Sensi certainly produced a skunk one that had a very sweet note to it, and that, to me, you know, ruined that 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 strain, you know, forever. So, you know, I, that's what I think Sensi did is they took div- a lot of diversity out of the game. And they did that over the years, too, because I feel like they continued to, like, further try to stabilize, you know, the strain so that they could create something that was predictable. But I don't know that, you know, that which is predictable is all that much fun, Uh, especially when it comes to something like cannabis and, and, uh, you know, uh, growing from seed. Part of the fun of growing from seed is exploring the depths of what that, you know, that strain can produce. And if you're, you know, if, if what's important to you is, you know, a marketable strain or a marketable seed pack and you want stability and you want something predictable, it just kind of, it waters it down. And I think they did a very good job of watering down a lot of genetics.
0: So, I mean, while we're on the general topic, if we mm-hmm. do look back at all the companies that have existed throughout time, which one mm-hmm. do you think was the best? <laughs>
1: that's a good question if i had to you know super sativa seed club if i'm looking back in, in in time a little bit i think they brought forth some very very important genetics to the to the world and i thought i think that they also provided us with some of the foundations that a lot of really popular strains now are built off of um and if i look to more recent times you know when i was still going over to amsterdam back in the 2000s i really had um i really i really had a a, a, a general love for uh TH seeds for adam dunn's group
0: oh there you go
1: nice and i thought some of the Strains that they were. I really loved his MK Ultra, especially before it was feminized. Do you think
0: a, something changed beyond the obvious?
1: Uh, yes, I do. Um, so I had grown, so I had gotten some MK Ultra seeds over in Amsterdam before it was feminized, and the there's a particular chemovar that uh, is just straight mothballs. And I love that. Uh, it's a it's a complex, deep-smelling flower. Like I said, the mothballs comes to mind first on the nose. It's a phenomenal hash maker. Uh, so I fell in love with that particular selection. And I had a friend go back over to Amsterdam a couple of years later and bring back some of the feminized version. And what we saw fairly consistently out of that was a uh, – Kind of had a light purplish hue to it, and had this sweeter note that um, kind of overpowered anything that was chemical or fuelly, and it just wasn't as exciting as the version we you know, as the chemo bar that we had seen come out of the pre-feminized days.
0: So the genetics have always been listed as b 13 and OG Kush. Yes. However, you know. I love you, Adam, but that's never made sense to me. How do, how do you make regular seeds with two clone onlys?
1: Well, <laughs> so you know, I, I don't know if there was a reversal done, which is somewhat possible. Uh, maybe there was access to the uh, to the G thirteen seed somewhere in that vault. I don't know. That's that's a very good question. And uh, interestingly enough, if I think back on it, you know, I can see both genetics in that flower. You know, you can definitely see the OG cushion there. You can taste the OG cushion there. There's a little bit of that earthiness for sure. Um, but It's something I've never really given too much thought to. And the only thing I can think of is either there was something going on with the G13, or perhaps something was reversed, which, a little colloidal silver, who knows, but that's just going to create S1s. Yeah, that's a very good question. Yeah.
0: I'd
1: like like to hear his
0: answer on that, actually. (laughs) I I forgot to ask him. Hopefully,
1: we'll find out one day. Someday, yes.
0: (laughs) just take a step back or wind down a little Mm -hmm. something which everyone remembers fondly what was your first experience with the chem dog
1: (laughs) well that definitely goes back to the east coast and it was definitely at a fish show it was definitely at hampton coliseum trying to remember what year I think it was 97 probably and it was a friend of mine who had packed a nice glass bowl and passed it to me during the show and wow that was one explosive hit back then (laughs) there was just nothing like it nothing that had at that point had even come close to that super chemical fuel taste. Uh, it it was definitely, it was definitely that, that one changed the game. Uh, you know, it was, it was interesting because, you know, I knew of chem back in the day but I knew him only as a glassblower. It really, the connection to the genetic had not been made at that point for me at all. It wasn't until years later that I actually made that connection. Um, But yeah, that flower was just phenomenal. Uh, I just, I will never forget the the nose burn and the eyes watering and just how it hit the frontal of the head you know, kicked your body temp up about two degrees just about <laughs> immediately. You know, That's I mean it's kind of like me. yeah, you know, it's kinda of like it's like taking that first you know, the first dab you ever take, you know, it's 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 a whole new experience. And um, you know didn't have really the opportunity to, you know, find out where it came from or purchase any or anything like that. So I had that experience in the, in the nineties. And then it wasn't until I moved out West and then, you know, met a few folks and some folks who were um, growing one version or another that uh, we saw more of it, but uh, that, that was, that was definitely one memorable bull hit. I can tell you that much.
0: And so do you think that was the 91? So nineteen ninety
1: eight you know I, I'm pretty I, at this point of, of my career, I'm pretty sure it was. Uh, I don't think it was the D, and of course the no nobody was really running some of the others at that point. It certainly was too way too early for the four, which you know we'll co- of course talk about that a little bit later, but um, uh, you know at th- that point, yes, I'm pretty sure that was the ninety one.
0: I was about to say that, that temperature one got me. That's I always get crushed by that one. And the other one mm. me and my friends love to say is uh, you get sweaty feet. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. I might have to use that. <laughs> yeah, uncomfortably high.
1: Right, right, right. Oh, absolutely. Don't I know about that sometimes? <laughs> so,
0: mm-hmm. hard question. Which yep. out of all the chem cuts is your favorite? And just know, if you say chem 4, you are dead to me.
1: well you know okay so can we sidebar for a second (laughs) okay (laughs) so so sidebar for a second so there's been this whole thing where i've had to change up the genetics on dog walker right i don't know if you're aware of this but you know i did it on instagram whatever so uh for many years i was under the impression that i had the 91 and it turns out it's the four now going back to the the 91 now that I have gone back and resampled you ninety know, one's probably my favorite, but i but I do don't mind the four. She's certainly been a good foundation for me uh, to breed with. Um, so ninety one is going to be my favorite. So you're saying you're half dead to me? <laughs> I'm only half dead. that's right, only half dead and and i wish I wish I could say i I, I you know, think it's deplorable, but I don't. It, <laughs> It's, it's been good to me and I I certainly can't complain and you know somewhere hiding in that genome is is a whole lot of gas because it certainly has shown off in some of my offspring
0: oh yeah I get this mm-hmm. weird betadine taste from it like iodine it's weird you know mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I like that. (laughs) (laughs) So I guess just to kind of summarize for people who maybe missed what we were talking about there, I guess the reason Mm -hmm. why that's important is because you've gone on to create a few very well-known strains using your cut, which you thought was 91, turns out to be the number four. So Mm -hmm. I think that's the reason why maybe it's a little more relevant that that post was made. But just to essentially explain it Mm -hmm. for everyone, um, one, I put up a post saying, Hey, everyone, just so you know, like, we thought that the dog walker was 91 cross Albert walker. It's actually the Chem 4 cross Albert walker. So there you go. Everyone's on the same page now. Um, okay. yeah. So I guess the first thing is that that obviously suggests that the Chem was the pollen donor in the Albert Wa- in sorry, in the dog walker, correct?
1: Not correct. So, okay. okay. So this is a game of selfing genetics and it's really starts off with the uh, what i call the awog it's an, actually an albert walker og cross so going back to we got the um og here in portland the og Kush in 04 and in 05 i had a plant that selfed and all i could find was a single pollen spike so i plucked that spike and a lot of people have a hard time believing this, but this, this is God's honest truth. Plucked a little spike, put it in a little tin, put it in my fridge, and later that summer, or fall, or it was summertime, um, had uh, the Albert Walker plant and decided to take that little bit of pollen on a little tiny paintbrush and just dust a branch of the Albert Walker plant. And that little process yielded a measly six seeds. And I got four of those to crack. I actually lost two of the seeds somehow, but four of those were cracked. I went with the most vigorous one that showed a pre, you know, pre, you know, pre-flowered female. And that one ended up selfing <laughs> itself in you know, somewhere around week three. So I kind of went through this process of like pulling pollen spikes and trying to keep up with it. But of course, certain things got, you know, that that plant got pollinated and that produced about 200 seeds, uh, which we called the AWOG, Albert Walker OG. The AWOG, I decided again to revive it some years later, right around 2009, and had at that point had just acquired the what we now know was Chem4 plant. And the AWOG, that I, I was growing two, AWog, two different AWOG plants. One of them was just a beast and super stable. The other one turned out not to be so stable. <laughs> so she then spit onto the uh, to the chem4. And then I actually collected some of her stamen and kept that in a little container that I later used to create uh, the, another strain called the wolf, uh, crossing it with forum cut. So you know what we do have here, admittingly, is a lot of instability, but very intentional uses of those unstable plants. And when it came time to crack the dog walker seeds, the original, the original cracking, um, it was just you know we I, I had a few hundred of the seeds, and we cracked uh, about ten of them. And, you know, knowing that they, you know, no males were going to get produced out of this project, uh, I decided to look at, I think there were four particular ones that were growing really nicely. We liked the stem rub, you know, the the, the odor that came off of that. And one of those kind of out was, was a bit muskier, if you will, than the others. And that one was just selected and we and you know, I ran with that one. And you know, it so what you have is the Albert Walker OG actually selfing onto the chem four plant. And that's how we got the original and current dog walker seeds.
0: And know, so that. I guess what might be surprising out of that whole story is that <laughs> the dog walker OG is not regarded as an unstable plant. <laughs> Would you agree with that, or do you think it does throw pollen? Well, so
1: here, so one of the things we saw very early on, and this is only in the first probably year, year and a half of its existence, was that it did not. It was very hypersensitive to oversaturation with light, and so in the very early days, there were a couple of us. Who experienced? And you got to remember, in the early days, there's only eight gardens that are running this strain. Um, but a couple of us were seeing this phenomenon where it would try to self, kind of, towards the end of the round. And so, uh, believe it or not, I think it was uh, my a friend of mine out at Heroes of the Farm who. Decided to pull his lights back another, you know, twelve inches or something like that. Went from like twenty-four inches to thirty-six inches. This is under single-ended thousand-watt lights. And then all of a sudden, that issue went away. So we kind of went. Word went around the small group of, hey, uh, you know, she 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 gets oversaturated pretty easily. Back your lights off. It'll prevent any of these issues. And since that era, I have yet to see a, a single. Unstable response from that plant. Period, uh, and certainly don't hear lots of murmurs about that being you know, about it being unstable. Um, you know, whenever there, you know, whenever someone calls or contacts or you know comes in the store to ask me about you know growing it, the first recommendation I make is you know put her on the perimeter if you can't raise your lights. Uh, She does a lot better on the perimeter around and not in splash over crossover zones than she does, you know, directly under in the crossover. She's a perimeter plant for sure.
0: Or get those lights up high. So, in general, the Dog Walker OG, it's it's really kind of gained itself a cult status along with the Scooby Snacks, which we'll get into yeah. shortly. Mm-hmm. How do you think that happened? You know, like, what do you kind of attribute it to? Just, just the quality? Or do you think there was, you know, like, the right people were growing it at the right time type of thing? Full disclosure? <laughs> yeah, go for it. <laughs> okay. Um,
1: so, it was all intentional. Um, Hell yeah. <laughs> so... This was during a time here in Oregon, where some of the the best cultivators that I knew uh, were starting to have to take less and less and less, you know, chipping away at the bottom line of what they were getting uh, for their product. And it was also right at the beginning of the cookie craze, so '09. And I'd been down in Northern California at a friend's farm. Uh, I gotten, you know, showed me the cookie and he was explaining like, oh, people pay, you know, a thousand, $2,000 a cut for this stuff. And you get, you know, top end at all the dispensaries. And when I, you know, when I sampled the plant, I mean, it was, it was amazing flour, it's super tasty, but I was like, what, what gives, you know, what is the driving force behind the craze? And he said, well, just, you know, it's really hard to get a cut of it and they really limit the release. And so I, I came back here to Oregon and thought about that a bit. And I said, you know, if, if there's some way somehow to come up with something here that, you know, I could create, give to a limited number of people, we control the release of it, we don't give it out. Uh, and if it's good enough, perhaps we can kind of start this same kind of craze here in Oregon, just with an Oregon-produced genetic. And – at that time, had the chem 4, there was the selfing of the AWOG, I think this is a good thing, I think this could be the cross. And it was really a, a stroke of luck that the, the you know the chemovar that we selected was the one that is out and available today. You know, as soon as we finished that plant, that first you know, bonghead of it was this is it. You know, we know we have something here. So I did a limited release to eight other growers that I knew in the area that were all friends. And, you know, we kind of had a powwow. This is the plant, here is what it's worth. Don't take anything less than that, don't give out cuts. This was also very during the very first early days of our quasi-dispensary system here in Portland or medical, you know, dispensary, so there were only a couple at that point, just two or three, that were definitely operating uh, very much in the gray. But, you know, if these places wanted this, this is what it cost, even if there was everything else was significantly cheaper, and we kind of stuck to our guns. And that that project worked great for about 18 months. (laughs) And then, you know, cuts were stolen and partnerships fractured and people got, you know, butthurt. But to this day, you know, it still is a crowd pleaser. Um, you know, for me personally, it's still a strain that I never get bored or tired of. Um, and it's, uh, you know, it's it's kind of legend and lore was born out of trying me my attempt to give something back to my friends to give them an opportunity to do a little better so it came from a good place but it was certainly an exercise in market manipulation
0: do you feel like that is a negative thing in the cannabis industry given it's so rampant in other industries there's a growing movement in australia that You know, people want everything to be as cheap as possible, or that type of thing, because they're like, "Oh, it's medicine," and it's like no one can see that. Like, there's obviously a a, a literal business side of things as well, and like, you know what I mean? It's it's an interesting thing because it's like people almost think that all the regular rules don't apply to cannabis because it's for some people, you know, it's more than just a recreational thing.
1: Well, yeah, there's a lot of altruistic dreamers in the cannabis industry, but at the end of the day, this is. Now, and has been for many years, people's livelihoods. Uh, they' you know we've certainly watched here in our state prices go from you know three thousand, and this is going you know like in the medical market, of course, you know, and now the rec market and medical market, you know, but people years just a few years ago getting upwards of three thousand thirty two hundred dollars a pound, and now they're having to settle for, 1200 1400 for the same quality uh, and it's not that it costs any less to cultivate it you certainly have to figure out how to survive in a lower margin market but uh, yeah you know I I think it has great value and I think it should you know eventually the boutique side of this industry and, and I'm speaking more for you know our state at this point the boutique side of the industry and the mass cultivation side of the industry will separate and there will be added value and value given higher value given to put, boutique produced cannabis right now that is there's there's no dichotomy there there's just no separation there or at least there's very little um, so I think that it, it's important to have to place greater value on cannabis that is produced with great thought, great passion, uh, intense work, uh, you know, not total automated systems and so forth and so on. so I, I, I kind of, I, I don't think, you know, it should be as the cheapest thing in the world because it, you know, once again, for a small producer, uh, that's, that's a death sentence, and I think it should be, you know, I think it should be a free market to where there's opportunity for all.
0: Yeah, exactly. And the, uh, the thing that I like is not taking any personal stabs, but I find a lot of the people making these broad types of claims are generally people who still buy into that whole bullshit of like, you know, like Gucci brands and they want a Mercedes car. And it's like, oh, so you, you, want, you want premium everything else, just not premium cannabis.
1: Right, 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 right. You'll pay. You'll, you'll buy a you know forty five hundred dollar handbag for your lady, but you don't want to pay more than five dollars a gram for cannabis. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't get that. You know, when I when I first so one of my first uh, dispensary experiences in uh, Portland was at a place here that had kind of a a farmers market style approach. You know, you pay a booth fee each day, and you could sit there and you know pass out your wares, and It used to amaze me how many people came in, you know, under the medical program and they'd want to sit there and, you know, go to the smoking room and roll a blunt up. But then every so often, you know, somebody would actually come in in a wheelchair or someone would actually come in who's going through chemo and needs help getting through the door. And it was just such a a stark contrast between you know, the people who really needed the medicine and then the people who just kind of wanted the medicine. And, and, and I, you know, look, I make no, I make no ill claim to anyone who just wants to smoke cannabis. I mean, that's primarily my, my take on it. Uh, but for the, you know, for those, for those folks that really need the medicine, there should be programs for those individuals. Uh, it's just, there's, you know, the way the state hands out the medical cards,
0: uh, you know, of hard to tell if they need it or if they just want it. Speak, speaking on like the medical model in Oregon in general, I've heard whispers from people that the general trend in Oregon is that there's a few companies opening up really big facilities and their production is so high. That's one of the major contributing forces to that downward trend on pricing. Do you feel that is actually an accurate analysis of the situation?
1: Absolutely, Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a statistic that came out uh, mid-December of last year where we had about 1.2 or 1.1 million pounds in our metric system. Wow. Now, the year before, the entire state for an entire – excuse me, entire year consumed about 430 or 460,000 pounds. Doubled. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, almost tripled. And so – there is, uh, there is an absolute glut in our industry here. And, you know, once that product's entered into metric, you don't have that old backdoor opportunity anymore. It's locked up in the system. So there are, you know, I think uh, we are going to see a lot of folks having hard times weathering this storm in our state uh, you know, recreational growers, uh, it's going to be, it's, and I think, you know, I think who really survives here uh, or has the best opportunity to survive are these smaller producers. You know, their, their necks aren't extended out quite as far as some of, you know, financially as some of these, you know, large, you know, well-funded operations. But if you're not turning a profit and it's, you are know, still dumping more money into something, it's, it's, it's a hard hole to get out of with prices plummeting. You know, I don't think we've seen the bottom here yet.
0: Oh, wow. Where, where do you think they'll bottom out at?
1: I don't know. 500 maybe?
0: <laughs> wow. Yeah. <laughs> so, something I was interested in, a little kind of peripheral, but it's kind of the same vein... When I was in Oregon, I felt I it was a really interesting place. It was almost like the twilight zone in a lot of regards because it's extremely similar to Australia in regards to like people's general attitudes, the mood, you know, mm-hmm. it's pretty, really laid back, pretty welcoming, that type of thing. That was really yeah. cool. The, the biggest thing that stood out in my mind though was I felt people were far more environmentally and kind of ethically aware of their actions and their decisions and, you know, everyone wants to be as organic as possible, things like that far more in, mm-hmm. in Oregon than in Australia. The dichotomy which slapped me in the face though is doesn't seem to be that same focus in regards to cannabis, in regards to organically grown versus synthetically grown. How do you think that exists? Like a lot of the cannabis I tried in Oregon myself was not organic as far as I could tell.
1: So, yeah, that's, that's a great – that's actually a great point. Uh, and being in the retail side of the industry, I can actually speak, speak volumes of this. So, it really depends where you are in Oregon. And it can even be as simple as what part of a county you're in, whether you're seeing salt, synthetic growers, organic uh, bottle growers, organic no-till. You know, you go down to a place like Eugene, which is uh, you know, just a little bit south here of Portland, a college town full of loads of hippie and counterculture folks, uh, and you're going to see – tons of organically uh, produced cannabis. You get back up here to Portland and the city kind of divides between, you know, Portland and then the west side which is uh, Beaverton and Hillsboro. You see a lot more salt growers out in that zone, but then as you go closer, you, know, you go further east towards Mount Hood from Portland, you start to get into rural, you know, farm country and there's certainly a lot of a lot of organic producers there. Now, you know the other thing to keep in mind here is a lot of these cultivators 10 years ago not even 10 years ago 6 years and 5 years ago were still running small oper- smaller operations and not necessarily uh, producing for you know, uh, they were clandestine operations. They're not necessarily producing for the medical market. So, you know, it was about, it's all about production. And you're starting to see that kind of turn now. You know, there's a lot of commercial groups that are just about production. But we actually see, you know, the store that I work for, we're very, uh, as far as you know, what we focus on and what we kind of preach, we certainly pre- preach and focus more on organic and sustainable approaches to cultivation, doesn't mean that we won't sell canna or advanced or botanical. we certainly do um but we we try to push for the organic thing through our store there are other stores that rarely push organics and you'll find you know a you know a lot more synthetic products on their on their shelves and so you know as you skip around from store to store in the city you can see really what that main customer base is based on the nutrients
0: that are more than readily available totally i can agree with that last point you know 100 Mm percent, because we're kind of experiencing that ourselves and that previously there's only been synthetic options and over the past few years we've seen the rise in organic options becoming more available and it really is a direct reflection of the market demand as far as i can see
1: Mm -hmm. yeah and it's true and and believe it or not, we we end up having to educate a, a lot of you know, growers, both you know small home growers and uh, commercial growers, in how to turn that operation into an organic operation. And you know so many a lot of your synthetic growers have kind of had it drilled into their head that this is the way to yield. This is how you yield. This is, you know, the organics doesn't yield enough. Or, and, uh, you know, that couldn't be any further from the truth. Uh, there, there are certainly, uh, you know, organic approaches that not only, you know, deliver incredibly flavorful cannabis, but also can produce phenomenal yields. And, you know, the yields are so much more, you know, strain contingent than anything else. If you ask me, and and so I think this, you know, I think there's this kind of uh, block blockade in the salt grower's mind that I, I can't go organic because I'm going to lose out on my yield. But, you know, and, and even cost wise, you, know, you can get very competitive cost wise uh, yeah. with organics.
0: I understand what you mean. I think the other thing I've noticed Maybe this is just, you know, a little bit of personal bias because I'm organic. But I think mm-hmm. that the, the learning curve with organics is a little steeper. And that's how we got to that point where people say the yield isn't as good. And it's like, no, if, if you get up there high enough on the curve, you'll get the same yield.
1: Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree with that uh, anymore. The, that's, there, there is you – know, you're, you're right about one thing. The curve is a little steeper and it's a little longer on fine-tuning organics but really you know one of the best pieces of advice that you know, I, that I give out at the shop is to you know pick a pick a program you know, an organic program or whatever you know and really figure out how to how that program can bring your strains to their full genetic expression. So don't switch programs, don't switch up genetics, work with those genetics with that nutrient program where that, you know, uh, or you know, no-till approach or whatever, but learn, you know, see what inputs are really influencing that your group of genetics or your strain or whatever so that you can get that best expression possible. Uh, and I, I, I truly believe that it's certainly <laughs> achievable through organics. It's achievable in synthetics too for to some degree. Um, but you know, the people that are pushing tons of FOS salts into their product and bloom boosting with their, you know, you know, thirty-five forty, you know, zero, 35, 40 project product at the end, you know, they're gonna end up with a bunch of road flare product for sure. And it's not gonna be very
0: flavorful, but it's gonna yield. Not not to hate on our soul growers. We've got a few out there and some yeah, of them do absolutely. a really good job still. Yeah. So so on a lighter note. I mm-hmm. constantly hear this analogy. I want to know if you agree. It's a bit of tongue in cheek, but people say to me, "Colorado weeds too dry, Oregon weeds too wet." Do you agree? <laughs> well, Colorado's too
1: dry, and we're too wet. Uh, sure, <laughs> you know. I mean, you, you know, that's. I always make the comment that whenever I because I do go to Denver, you know, generally once or twice a year, and as soon as I walk off the airplane, I can feel the moisture leaving my lips because <laughs> it is that dry there. Uh, and it is. You see that uh, in Colorado with, you know, I take you know, cannabis there and within two days, if it's not, you know, in a sealed container with a humidity pack, it's you know, turned to rock hard and eventually dust. And, you know, yeah, it's, it's damp up here in Oregon. But, you know, it, it, you know I, 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 a great example for Colorado, I have a friend of mine who used to run, you know, and he probably still does, runs humidifiers in his drying room. <laughs> you know, that's that's a testament to how freaking dry it is there and you know here it's really about how you how you dry your cannabis and how you cure it after that so you know i i, I could i could understand someone's gripe with oregon being a little too <clears throat> damp and uh you know colorado is certainly dry Oof.
0: yeah okay so get back to our industry talk in case mm-hmm. we didn't make it a bit obvious, you've obviously managed and run hydroponic stores slash growth stores in general for many years. I'm sure you've seen the fads come and go. What <laughs> products do you think fall under that general fad cycle? You know, to me, it feels like we've had, you know, the Shilajit trend. It's, it's almost completely died off. You know, not, not almost. There. There's maybe a few stragglers, but they'll die off soon.
1: Yeah, I mean, there <clears> have <throat> been a load of what I just call kind of flash-in-the-pan products. And, uh, you know, uh, you'll have to forgive me because uh, I I can't in good conscience call out too many of them on the negative just because I'm going to sell some of them and I'll probably hear back from others. But, you know, they're the hype products that companies invest loads of money on uh, into the marketing of those products. Um, Some of them are here to stay for a long time. Some of them have come and gone already. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, the, I kind of split the industry into two groups. There's the products that are made to market <laughs> and then there are the products that are just made. And what, we, what I often find is that the, the hyped companies, if you will, uh, products you know they all work otherwise they wouldn't be in business but you're going to pay out the wazoo for them because gosh they have to back all that marketing somehow and two it's you know it's generally pretty cannabis but not the best tasting cannabis so for me you know it, Things like, uh, what's a good program to that falls into this kind of flash in the pan category? That's um, three a lot. <laughs> yeah, you know, I look and that that book. You know, it was so funny when that book came out. Uh, how. Yeah, you know, so many people clamored into the store and wanted to, to us to explain to them how to do it. I'm like, I don't know, you gotta buy the five hundred dollar book. You know, they explain how to do it. You know, and of course that led to all the stripping the leaves and everything like that. And people are like, oh, all you gotta do is strip leaves. Well, no, there's a whole like nutrient fee that they put in that book that you know compensates for the loss of your storage houses. Uh, so you know, it's it's <laughs> You know, I, I, I don't want to pick on anybody in particular, but there's a few of them out there. Uh, and and I, I keep stressing the heavily marketed, heavily marketed thing. Uh, you know, products that, that work and produce well don't need a lot of hype. They yeah. speak for themselves. The results speak for themselves. And so, you know, I have sold product on and off for the last 17 years and, you know, seen a lot of good ones come, and I've seen a few bad ones go. You know, the, there was a point in time here in the States uh, a few years back, uh, going back to the kind of mid-2000s to you know, 2010 era, roughly, where uh, there was paclobutrazol showing up in all these uh, flower-boosting products. Phospholode, Red Dragon. And it was funny because the companies that were creating these products were just simply you know, they create one, it would get banned, and then they would just you know, rename, relabel the same product and wait for that one to get banned. You know, is definitely not a very pleasant compound. Um, known carcinogen, especially if you're, you're smoking it. And in fact, there was a, you know, a company down in California that had been called out by a couple of states for their content of it. Uh, and eventually, if I'm not mistaken, the EPA got involved, um, you know, and, and banned the product nationally. So, uh, you know, some of these, you know, and, and a few of these products were pretty, you know, heavily marketed, and yeah, this is the game changer, you know, increase your yields tenfold, whatever. Uh, but all at what expense to the end user? and uh, so it was that and you got to remember too there was very 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 little regulation on our industry until just a few years ago
0: you describe the Australian market right now The you know rampant with plant grow, uh, plant growth regulators and mm-hmm. I guess the issue which I'm really interested in knowing and you probably have the answer is you, you just referenced one situation where it happened. But how rampant do you think the problem is of companies having off-label PGRs? Do you think it really is a common occurrence or it's more of a rare thing?
1: <coughs> I think, you know, in all honesty, I believe that it's not as rampant as it used to be in this country. If you go back five or six years, it was pretty rampant. Once states like California uh, and Oregon for their registration required a full disclosure of contents, uh, that, started, that ceased the frequency of products like that ever making it back into our market. Uh, you know, a few of these companies were shut down and sued and made a lot of, you know, kind of a racket throughout the industry. And that that got people to notice, you know, before nobody really noticed, nobody really knew to ask, you know, if this had a, a, a you know, a harmful PGR in it. Uh, they just saw the results that it created and thought like, well, this product works, so let's keep using it. Uh, and that's unfortunately, you know, a the, the, the result of having You know, back then, which was really an uneducated customer base, which allowed a lot of bad actors to thrive in our industry here. But once there was, you know, state intervention on the level, you know, by the Department of Agriculture in various states, then the situation started to correct itself. And I feel like we're at a point now where it is. At least in our state, and certainly in California, very, very difficult to register a product uh, that has for our industry that has a PGR. You got to remember the states; we don't have a unified registration for the entire country. Each state has its own registration for uh, nutrients, pesticides, fungicides, whatever.
0: So, the reason why I bring up that question is because on your Instagram page, there's like a, a post kind of referencing that, that there was some, uh, I believe the product's called Azatrol. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, it had some adulterants in it, mm-hmm. but they weren't actually plant growth regulators. They were more like... Um, in. Yeah. Uh, what's the They're word? Pesticides. Yeah. Pesticides. I was going to say insecticides, yes. but mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Pesticides. Do you think this mm-hmm. is something which is a little more rampant given? And I was going to ask you, this as a question as well. You know, what do you think the next trend will be in terms of these fad products we mentioned? I feel like pesticides, fungicides, these are the ones on the rise. You know, it seems like every day there's a new one, especially organic ones. Right.
1: So, um, so we have, uh, we have, a. A registration here through the EPA, uh, which is 25B compliant, which is low or minimum risk pesticides, which those generally do not have to be thoroughly tested. You just have to register as such as long as the ingredients that you provide are all 25B compliant, then the EPA approves your product. And it's a lot of these 25B compliant products, quote unquote, <laughs> that seem to be sneaking things into their products and of course when it comes when when rubber meets the road with this and the company has their back against the wall you know they blame their partners they blame you know some nefarious force that slipped this into their product but at the end of the day uh, they're adding adulterants for some reason or other, or there's some kind of crap cross-contamination happening at the facility. The azetrol one is very interesting and intriguing to me because when when I looked into the compounds that were showing up in those tests uh, as adulterants, the addition of those particular compounds made zero zilch, no sense whatsoever from a IPM or uh, knockdown approach strategy, You know, even even if you're a big ag person. The, that particular group just did, didn't make any sense why we'd all be in there together. So part of me wants to think that perhaps there's some kind of residual contamination that's happening at that. I mean, the, the, the company that manufactures that product manufactures every single one of those compounds <laughs> in some shape or form. Uh, through their company and uh, it manufactures it out loads. So, you know, it, it doesn't make sense for a company of that magnitude, because you got to remember, that's not a hydro industry company. That's an ag company. Uh, so it doesn't make any sense for them to intentionally adulter their product. Now, the fact that it hasn't come back to market yet, that's very curious to me. Um, but something... That one was very strange. There have been a couple others, and believe it or not, our store has kind of been ground zero for the discovery of these products. What really brought the adulterant of pesticides to light for our industry was the testing of finished product of, yeah. of the cannabis and, and, and concentrates. And so the, one of the first major cases we had here was with a product called Guardian, And Guardian was being produced, I think, out of a company out of Michigan, Um, you know, lemongrass oil, uh, cinnamon, a couple other little essential oils. And it was being sold, believe it or not, to organic growers as a way to knock back russet mites, which had just kind of found their way into the Oregon scene. And everyone was just having this incredible success with these essential oils, you know? And none of us could like, wow, they've just they've kind of unlocked the key here because no one could at that point in time was having very much success getting rid of russet mites. And eventually, uh, I think it was two or three cultivators uh, down in Eugene or in that area uh, failed their pesticide screening uh, for, because uh, abamectin was present. Mm-hmm. and uh, you, a lot of folks will know the uh, brand name avid you know some people say it was ivermectin some people says abamectin, but whatever so what the department of ag so the, the the lab that found these test results uh called you know called all the growers and said you know everybody write down your list of all of your inputs and the three gardens all had one common denominator which was this guardian product so uh, that lab, OG Analytical, down in Eugene, called the Department of Ag and said, hey, we have a suspicion here. So the Department of Ag contacted our store because we had sold one of the bottles and said, hey, do you have this product? We said, yeah, we do. like, OK, we're going to come by and t- grab a bottle off your shelf. So they bought a bottle off of our shelf. They went down to Eugene, which is about two hours away south, bought a bottle off their shelf, and then went down to southern Oregon, and bought a bottle off those, tested all three of those independently. Voila, there's abamectin. So, you know, you call the, uh, you know, so then the department of ag uh, calls the uh, company, the the manufacturer, and the guy says, oh, my partner just put some of that in, yadda yadda yadda. No, your partner didn't just slip some of that in. It's been there all along. That's why it's actually killing russet mites, because, I'm sorry, lemongrass and cinnamon oil isn't going to kill a russet mite. Um, It will, they're they're great uh, repellents, but not necessarily kill factor. Um, So... That was the first case where pesticide screening actually benefited <laughs> the community, and it was that event that got me very, very interested in you know looking at adulterants that were currently in in products in our industry and right after the uh, right after the guardian. Uh, situation there was another one with a product called mighty wash that was wildly and rampantly available as a 25b this one had frequency water in it right quote unquote and it was killing mites everyone just destroying mites spider mites two spotted right and uh, you know oh, it's 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 you know the 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 what was the, the gag was me a,
0: a vortex implosion pump. yes that sounds
1: uh, like <laughs> Well, it was it the, the frequency would stun the mite and the oil would suffocate it, and that was its mode of action. Well, so one of our customers comes back to us and says, hey, you know, I've failed a couple tests now for pyrethrum. Oh, well, what are you using? Go down the list. Oh, Mighty Wash, huh? So I call up the Department of Ag and said, hey, at this point we have a nice relationship. And I say, hey, we've got this product here, and our customer keeps failing for pyrethrum. You want to come check this out? So they so said, we'll be right up. So they came and bought a bottle off of our shelf, did the same thing. Bottle down in Southern Oregon, bottle in Salem, Oregon, state capital. Uh, sorry, not Springfield is. Uh, but then uh, they discovered pyrethrum in a product oh. that was 25B compliant. Now, and pyrethrum isn't the nastiest of compounds. It really, of all of the knockdown, takedown pesticides, it's 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 fairly Safe to use. But if you don't disclose it in your product and people are using your product up to the day of harvest and then making concentrates from your product, see how things scale up very quickly here.
0: yeah
1: uh, it's it's a problem. And, uh, you know, this, of course, then goes back to the mycobutinol thing and Eagle 20 and the cyanide hydrogen or hydrogen cyanide that's released from that when it's combusted. Uh, And that actually got me very heavily involved with a couple of groups. Um, And there's a one, at least one white paper out there that's published uh, that I was a part of. And then I actually went to speak at a uh, cannabis conference in New York City, uh, that uh, a group called Botech Analytical put on. it was an international cannabis conference and spoke on a panel with a couple of other individuals specifically about adulterants and a- entering into the uh, supply chain for products used to cultivate cannabis. And um, you know it was it it was very important to me for at that point to, you know because a lot of these folks who came to this conference, were very policy-oriented or financial-oriented individuals. And uh, they, uh, you know, it, it was something you had to explain, you have to understand that the, the majority of the con- customers who are using these products that are going to the grow store are not necessarily, you know, they certainly don't have pesticide applicators licenses. So they're they're not educated in the world of pesticides, pesticide application. Uh, so, you know, the, the old, you know, just use twice as much as what the label recommends was a pretty <laughs> popular way of uh, approaching you know, pesticide and fungicide use. Uh, so for me, whenever a bulletin uh, – and I'm always you know, I'm, I'm linked in with ODA Alerts, uh, Oregon Department of Agriculture Alerts. Whenever a bulletin gets posted, uh, I'm going to very quickly put it up on the uh, Instagram there because you know the folks who do follow me in this state, that's important for them to know.
0: Yeah. Okay. So just kind of touching back on like, I guess, maybe a general undertone that's been going on in the whole conversation. <laughs> do you view a lot of these new organic based pesticides with an eye of caution? Or do you think that there is a legitimate kind of area of research that could be done to develop better organic Pesticides, And the reason why I bring this up is because, you know, there's obviously just such a vast contrast in the effectiveness of synthetic Mm -hmm. versus organic. Like synthetic, it's like one application and stuff just dies. Mm -hmm. Um, With organic, it seems like, you know, we're really trying to just like, you know, chase our tails, but you can kind of get on top of it eventually. Do you think Mm -hmm. that's the general situation and it's not going to change too much? Uh, You know, it... it, (laughs) By looking
1: at what you know, California is allowing. I'd say that's definitely the situation. You know, what you're dealing with once again is an uneducated customer base. Uh, so until things like pesticide, you know, and if you look at so the way the the Environmental Protection Agency works here in the states is if you have a product that you're bringing to market, you know, the EPA tests it, goes through a rigorous testing, you know, 120 some different tests, uh, but they test it on specific crops. And on most labels of most pesticides, uh, it lists the specific crops that it is, that it is legal to use that pesticide, fungicide, or miticide on. If you use it on some other crop, let's say cannabis, then you're absolutely violating EPA regulation, and you can be fined, and all kinds of horrible things can happen. Right? So the the big fear of the states in allowing any pesticide or fungicide is that they would be defying EPA regulation by allowing cultivators to do so. So what you find in most states as far as what is allowed are a lot of 25B compliant products that are safe or, you know, that are, that are they're generally safe to, you know, generally regarded as safe, what do they call that? Gross. Uh So these products are, somewhat benign in the sense that they are they are good control measures they are very difficult they're not as they're not' they're not as easy to create a solution from them but we're getting better there's a, a couple of companies out there uh, Marone bio innovations that are putting forth some pretty interesting products uh, that you know, I certainly can get behind. You know, for me, it's not about pesticides to control pests. It's you know, good practices, beneficials, predatory insects that can play well with biopesticides. Uh, to me, that's the best approach. You know, prevention is obviously the first step. <laughs> but if you are dealing with you know certain pests or certain funguses, uh, there is generally a very good and sound. A "Quote unquote organic approach to solving that problem, but it generally requires multiple steps because there. Look, even with chemicals, there's no magic bullet in any of this. So it repeat applications, and of of certain products. And of course, uh, for me, when it comes to you know insects, uh, I, I love the idea of using predators coupled with biopesticides. Uh, Generally, between those two arms, uh, you can solve many, many, many problems. They have a pretty far reach. So, Mm -hmm.
0: something I noticed on your Instagram was that you uh, do the gas lantern method. It's a little. Yes. Yeah, a little bit of an unusual thing, something everyone's curious about, but I find, you know, certainly myself never tried it. What initially stimulated you to do it, and what about it causes you to keep doing it? So. Oh, gosh,
1: how many years ago was this? Probably 2012 or 13, I was at a trade show in Denver, and a very good friend of mine uh, came up behind me and whispered, Gas Lantern, check it out, and then walked away. (laughs) So... I was like, okay. So I was back in my hotel room that night after the event, and you know, started looking online, Google gas lantern, gas lantern. Comes across, you know, Joe's Piatri's thing. Okay, so I'm looking at this whole lighting schedule first, and like, wow, this is like mind blowing. I I don't see how this could ever work out. But then I'm reading the um, uh, he had put together kind of a reasoning of why this works so well. And, you know, his whole theory is that we we are constantly oversaturating cannabis more so than it typically needs uh, to be to be lit. And you know, he starts with you know, people who like to do 24 hours of veg, for example. And he's like, well, look at where it's 24 hours of light for extended periods of time. That's generally the polar regions. If you look around the polar regions, granted, it's cold, but not much grows there. Uh, you can even come down a little bit further, and then you get into tundra regions. But you know, you're getting lichen and grasses, but nothing that's lush and supple. Once again, it's probably more temperature related. But he's he's using this to drive a point home. And then out of that, he he states that um, if you look at plants that are vegged, you know, six, eight, ten weeks to get these large plants indoors under artificial lighting, we generally see pre flowering occurring somewhere in that fifth to sixth week of running like 18.6. And for a photoperiod obligate plant, this is, this is his theory now, uh, which I somewhat subscribe to, for a photoperiod obligate plant, that is a very unnatural reaction. So floral hormones should stay bottled up in that plant until, until that photoperiod triggers, and then that should release release the hormone. So he says, so why are we seeing these little you know, pistols showing up five, six weeks into a veg? Well, it has a lot to do with this over-lighting of plants, and it's more of a stress response. Uh, so the plants are letting out little bits of floral hormones uh, during a time when it should be keeping those bottled up. So... That's kind of the reasoning why he says it. So I, I read this and I think, okay, well, this kind of makes sense. So I get back to Portland and pretty soon thereafter decide, okay, I'm going to try – I'm going to start with the veg. You know, uh, 13 on, what's it? Five and a half off, one on, five and a half off. Or 12 on, excuse me. Twi- 12 on, five and a half off, one on, Twelve. Five uh, five and a half off again. So anyway, so the light, the light break is what kind of keeps these floral hormones bottled up. And the way he, the way he rationalizes that is in reason, if, if, the reason why they call it the gas lantern is you know, Northern latitudinal glass houses in the winter time, trying to keep uh, flowering crops from flowering. They go through in the middle of the night, light up these gas lanterns and that little bit of a light break in the middle of the dark cycle would keep those hormones bottled up so that the flowers wouldn't express or shift gears, so to speak. So uh, I applied that practice to my own garden pretty quickly and was kind of amazed when I saw that, you know, eight weeks into veg, there's no pistol showing up. And then as soon as I would put a plant into flower, you know, and the theory here is you get this kind of rush of floral hormones because they've been bottled up so long. Uh, when you put a plant in the flower, you get a brush of floral hormones. And so flower set does tend to occur a couple of days early. Uh, so I did the veg side of it for about five rounds, almost for an entire year before I ever subscribed to the flowering and the diminishing light on the flowering end. And I just, you know, I, I just, I, I in the beginning, the first couple of runs, like I just knew something bad was going to come out of it. And fortunately nothing ever did, but it was, it's such a leap of faith when you know, your entire growing career, you're told 18-6, 18-6, 18-6, this is how you do it. You know, people say like, oh, you gotta have 24 hours of light over your clones. No, you know, one I people suggested 24 hours of light over clones to keep the temperature stable. That was it. You know, I clone under Gas Lantern. Great, great success from it. Uh, so on the veg side of things, it's a, it's a great money-saving opportunity, especially for a large commercial uh, grow. You know, and I've heard lots of people think, oh, you know, it decreases your yield or it slows down the veg. And I, I couldn't, that certainly has not been my experience whatsoever. Certainly haven't had any yield loss over the years, and the veg keeps up just as, as good as ever. Uh, so, it, it, but it is, it, it's, it's a huge leap of faith. <laughs> uh, and I can't stress that. It's, it's such a hard shift to make in your head to say, okay, I'm only going to light these veg plants up 13 hours a day now.
0: Yeah. So I guess maybe if we try to condense all that down into one line, would you advocate Mm -hmm. everyone uses the gas lantern method? No.
1: Because there are some strains that will act adversely to it. Uh, Equatorial strains, especially. (laughs) Um, I think that... And I've only had I've had one strain in my life not work with it, and that was Sinex. Synex did not react very good to the veg program at all. But Sinex can be kind of a wild plant to begin with. Um, but it, yeah, I mean, I think for someone who's coming out of the gates, maybe a hobbyist, if you want to have that. You know, guaranteed your genetics going to work fine with it. Then run your eighteen six. But I think for someone with a little more experience that's willing to experiment with their genetics to see how they react, uh, like I said, all of mine except for that one strain which I don't run anymore, uh, all of mine have done fine by it. So uh, you know, I think someone with some experience that's willing to take a risk, it's better for them than perhaps someone who's completely green to the game.
0: So, just to completely clarify, because I only very briefly referenced it earlier, do you believe in defoliation at all? Like, we kind of were, you know, talking shit about three or light, like, but right. do you believe there's any merit in defoliation of any kind, or are you just kind of not into it at all?
1: Um, no, I mean, I do periodic, I, I, I don't strip my plants, personally. Um, and, and keep in mind, too, you know, I'm, I'm a smaller cultivator, so I don't have a giant warehouse or anything like that. Um you know, so I have the ability to work very closely with the number of plants that I do have on, on a very personal level. So, you know, I will remove fan leaves as I see fit. If they're shadowing out of, you know, a lower branch, or I want to get a little bit more light down that, you know, down that, ma- that one branch, you know, I will do periodic removal throughout the bloom process, but I am not a fan leaf stripper. Um, it can work. I've done it before, A couple of my varieties reacted fairly decently to it. A couple of them didn't react so well. So I bagged it after two attempts. Um, But keep in mind, too, that it's more than just, you know, the stripping of the leaves. There's also this augmenting of the feed to provide, you know, kind of consistent flow of nutrients because you are removing those storage houses when you strip them all away from the plant.
0: Yeah, totally. So So, let's take a step back. I realize we didn't go over it and I really want to know. The Albert Walker mm-hmm. itself, it's an interesting mm-hmm. strain. It's a bit of an enigma. No one can tell me too much about it, and no one ever has any to smoke. Yeah.
1: <laughs> sure. So the Albert Walker that we had in the mid-2000s was a very finicky plant, but had this incredible kind of combination of like a rose note, like from Roses, you know, a very floral, sweet rose note, but with this crazy kind of garlic funk as well. <laughs> so mm. it was like, yeah, it was a very, very strange and and, and, and and you know, interesting plant to me. It was a bit finicky, so I didn't run it for very long. Um, but it, it, it just, yeah, it just had such this clash of noses on it that it was just it was just remarkable the high was decent Uh, it wasn't uh, stupendous or anything like that but the the it was the flavor that really got me and it's that unmistakable rose note with that garlic kind of buried in there that just it just gets me every time and you know what I haven't seen it for years I've seen a lot of things come through I've actually had a lot of folks because I've at one point was kind of in this headspace of getting back to the root genetics of dog walker and so a couple years ago I went on a hunt for uh the Albert walker and i don't know three or four different specimens have been brought to me and none of them none of them were there none of them were it <laughs> Uh, so I, I don't, you know, I'm sure it is still in existence. Uh, I hear a lot of folks kind of on the west. There's a crew on the west side of our area that runs Albert Walker pretty heavy. But um, I've, I've yet to see what they're producing. So, yeah, it's kind of, and it is, it's a bit of an enigma string because I think there's a lot of imposters out there. It's, you know, it's just like chem, you know, there's so many imposters out there. Um, finding, getting to the to the you know to the origin to the real to that real cut can be a, ver- a very daunting task.
0: And so, do you give any credence to the current online story, which says that you know originates from the Grateful Dead? I think it says Roadie Crew. I'm doubtful on that, hmm. but you know, like some kind hmm. of Grateful Dead genesis. Do you think that's true? And it also says that the suspected genetics are Afghan skunk. Hmm.
1: Yeah, I you know I, look I, we have a lot of incredible genetics came out of the, the Grateful Dead scene that's for sure. Um, you know there's uh, <laughs> well, we, there's loads of stories we can tell, but uh, yeah I, I do buy into the, the you know I, I buy into the Northwest origin of it. I buy into the that it was something that evolved out of the Grateful Dead scene. Now whether it was the roadie crew or someone else who really knows.
0: Uh, and you said Swazi skunk. Uh, sorry, Afghan skunk. Oh, an Afghan skunk. Hmm. Not as interesting as Swazi skunk. <laughs>
1: no. Yeah, I was just gonna say Swazi skunk sounds great. Yeah, I mean, I could, I could see that. I mean, it was definitely a squatter plant. Um, what was really remarkable to me was this very light-colored uh, green, almost like a pale green it was never really a super dark robust plant for us you know that could have been part of its finickiness and us at that time not being able to really dial it in nutrient wise but it uh you know it yeah i think it gets its origin from the grateful dead scene i i don't doubt that at all
0: it's interesting Mm -hmm. because it's certainly gone on to make you know, a wide variety of well-known strains, but if we Mm -hmm. just take a bit of a step forward to after you'd made the dog walker OG, Mm -hmm. let's get Mm -hmm. into the scoobies. At what point did it become, you know, a thought in your mind to cross dog walker with the cookies? So that came out of my cookie experience
1: and it was very interesting with cookies for me. Um, so I was running the forum cut. This is going to sound really hard to, to believe, but If I only ran one plant in the room, (laughs) one cookie plant, it would always produce a tiny male cluster on one of the bottom branches. Just one, though. (laughs) The first time it happened, I thought it was a phenomenon. The second time it happened, it made me pay attention. And the third time it happened, I did it intentionally. And so it was the pollen from that forum cut that I used on that – Second event to pollinate the dog walker because I thought to myself, well, here's this. How cool would it be to have all these purples and stuff wrapped up in dog walker? And um, I, it, it was it was a risk it, for me. I didn't want though to create like another cookie plant. You know what I mean? Like I didn't want to be like grow you know grow like that, that, that cookie structure. Just drives me crazy. So at the time, I actually pollinated with that that little bit of mail, with that little cluster that had developed, dusted a dog walker plant, and then also at the time, I was running a cotton candy kush and dusted a cotton candy kush plant as well with it. And once again, just using, you know, collected pollen in a small container, little paintbrush, you know, short bristles, just painting it on. And we ended up, oh gosh, what did I have? Probably... Close to 100, 150 of the scooby seeds. And And how
0: how many of those still exist?
1: Probably about 60 (laughs) at this point. That's cool. Yeah, I mean, a lot of them went out for a big pheno hunt this summer out at Heroes of the Farm. And unfortunately, a lot of those were lost to a mouse issue when they were still young and <laughs> tender. Um, a, a couple flats, I think, got chewed up at some point. But uh, there were some others that were explored this summer, uh, which I've yet to. I, I saw them right as they were finishing when they were still in the greenhouse. But. Um, You know the the original is a hard one to beat, and and originally I had two different finos. The the one that I kept and the other one wasn't very stable, so I called it the Scrappy Doo, little (laughs) tongue in cheek there. And that got actually passed on to some folks, and they did whatever they did with it, and it still kind of pops up around town here and you know off and on. But the the Scooby that was selected, and there's really kind of a a, a kind of a heartwarming story. that that from that one so you know that original the one that i liked so the reason i liked is that the flower was more uh, structure wise was a little more dog walker dominant uh, it had all the it had some of the cookie coloring in it and then it just had this just extremely offensive nose and i passed it off to a co-worker of mine for safekeeping because i was running out of room and i just i couldn't i was exploring other stuff at the same time so i said you know hey can you hold this for me and on um, the uh, the coworker uh, passed away at an untimely time. And when that happened, a small group of us went over to his house before his family arrived to clean up the garden. So that wouldn't be something they would have to deal with because maybe they didn't know he had a garden or something. And so we get over there and... I walk into the room and I see the scooby plant plant, plant over in the corner. And, and I kind of looked around. There was a couple other people there. And I grabbed a pair of scissors and I cut, I don't know, maybe a dozen cuttings and wrapped them up with a wet paper towel and threw them in a Ziploc. And then I just just massacred what was left of that plant because I didn't want anybody else to get it. And I took those clones back to my house and uh, called my friend, Pat, who's the guy who started Piers of the Farm. And I said, hey, you know, I have these cuts that I got from my buddy's house and I need them to go somewhere safe. And Pat says, oh yeah, you know, I'll come by and get them. And Pat actually took them back to his house and kind of forgot about them, I think, for almost a week, maybe 10 days. And when he finally remembered they were in the back of his fridge, he's like, oh shit, those cuts were in there. And he actually got, I think, two of them to root. So, you know, out of great tragedy came something phenomenal, I think. You know, it's uh, – and those guys out at Heroes were very good to keep that strain. You know, interestingly enough, I actually just got it back for the first time <laughs> about mm, three, three and a half months ago now. So I haven't run it in all, in all these years since that very first run – and then passing it on to the co-worker and eventually passing it on to heroes. Wow, what a what a kind of journey it's taken. Yes, it has. And uh, she wears her badge as well.
0: <laughs> so, let's take a step back for a moment. I'm going to play devil's advocate, throw you in the hot seat. Okay. You, think, you think Archive knew what he was doing? You know what I mean. Oh, man.
1: <laughs> you know, I... I I have a lot of respect for those guys. They're phenomenal breeders, they're phenomenal growers. They do a lot of good work. The, you know, he's a, Fletcher's a fellow Virginian. So I've got mad respect for that as well. There's another one for you. I I
0: it,
1: it, It's very interesting to me because so we had it working pretty heavily through the dispensary system here in Portland and Eugene, and Oregon in general. And you know I was doing I would always do searches to make sure it wasn't showing up you know in other people's gardens and stuff like that because that was another one that we were trying to keep you know super kind of contained and I'll never forget the day that I looked up and Leafly had Scooby Snacks I was like, whoa what is this and then I go and onto the Leafly page and I'm like oh whoa, this isn't right and of course a lot of the comments that short were shortly you know thereafter to follow were like oh we thought this was this and not that and you know to me, at that point of time, the my biggest concern was, you know if someone went you know had tried one version and then went and bought seeds of another version and didn't get anything that was close, you know, how is that person going to feel as a customer? And so, you know I, I was a little concerned at that point. And you know there was a point in time where I was probably a little you know, <laughs> more hyped up about it than I am now. I mean, at this point, it's water under the bridge, and I think, uh, I, I finally actually got to see some of the archive Scooby snacks uh, uh last year and you know it, it, it's a good strain uh, of course they have I I know, I know they have some you know other ones that, that 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 one pales in comparison when you compare them to some of his really really high end stuff but um it's you know I I, I don't know you know the, the purist in me wants to think that or the <laughs> the purest the lover in me wants to think that it was just happenstance the industry side of me says, you know, perhaps there was, you know, a little advantage taken up there. But I don't know, you know, we've never had the conversation. Uh, we've met briefly a couple times. Like I said, I have a lot of respect for what the guy what those guys do there. Um, but, you know, what really kind of settled me on it was when I went to the Emerald Cup two years ago in 2016. And at that point I was a little more concerned and, you know, everyone that I met there knew the one eye version. So, you know, that, that, kind of made me feel good, you know, and it, it calmed me down a bit. And, you know, they, so the people to me that, you know, that eventually would matter, um, they knew which one. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's, so it's hard to, it's, it's, it's hard to, I, I don't want to guess. And, and like I said, I don't want to, uh, you know what I mean? Like I, I I wanna I kinda wanna play Switzerland on this one because like I said, there's a part of me that believes one thing, there's the other side that believes something else, and at this point I'm going with the, the, the do right person.
0: <laughs> yeah, I you get know? what you mean. Just the, the way I see the situation, mm-hmm. I just think if you do boil it down, the genetics do seem really similar, although dog walk is not the same as the face off. Still kind of right. like OG to cookies, it's still kind mm-hmm. of a similar thing and the big thing that i noted is oregon above other places in my opinion has very much kind of like um like you know there's there's cult followings the the j1 Mm -hmm. the blue magoo Mm -hmm. and scooby snacks you know so i i would find it hard to believe that he wasn't aware of the strain given that it is a cult followed one oregon has that culture of locking onto a few strains and really loving them Mm -hmm. and so i i just tend to think that it would be very hard for him to have not been aware well, and and
1: if you, and I'll just say one little thing. One of the names when you look at the lineage is serendipitous.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll leave it at that. Yep. So, this, you know, very loosely touches on the idea of ownership. What does mm-hmm. ownership of a plant mean to you? When do you get ownership of a plant? When do you have to stop listening to other people in regards to what you want to do with the plant?
1: Yeah, I mean, my
0: experience with Dog Walker taught me a lot about that.
1: There was a point of time for the first couple of years where I was obsessed with, you know, contacting people who claimed they were, you know, had, they had clones of it. And, you know, because at that point it was trying to figure out how did this leak out? How did it get outside our small group of eight? And, you know, over time you eventually find out the cracks in the wall occur. But, you know, it's – the ownership thing to me, it, it's – it's a tough subject because as a breeder, you know, I I don't necessarily all, you know, want to forever profit off my work, but at least want to, you know, just be known for for what I've done. And uh, to me, you know, if you've created something and you're using, you know, for, for example, if I'm gonna be breeding with something, I'm not gonna necessarily release it, you know, at that time. Uh, because I want to work with it and kind of hold it back. But, you know, look, some of these amazing genetics that are out there uh, get, you know, start off in this amazing realm and then just kind of get played out for one reason or another. And I don't know because it's overpopulated, the, you know, the cannabis scene or what. And then some of them, you know, are still major players and you know, the industry never gets tired of them. So, uh, you know, on the ownership tip, it's, uh, you know, it depends on, I guess, what the, you know, and and I'm very, you know, intellectual property is something to me that's very important moving forward in this industry, especially for those who are are creating these genetics. Um, I think that there, you know, I wish there was some way for someone to protect it. Uh, You know, there's, if you think about something you know, think about all the folks who have profited off of, you know, chem dog and chem dog crosses, but, you know, the guy who originally, you know, cracks the seeds doesn't get jack squat from it. And there's folks out there who have made millions off of those crosses. So, uh, you know, if, if, there was a, if there was a easy foreseeable way for folks to stake ownership, and now that it's become more commercialized, I think that's more important than it was maybe in the past. Uh, but what I don't want is for, you know, all these breeders to have done these amazing, you know, projects with genetics and then all to have it swooped up in the future by some corporate giant that's figured out a way to get a utility patent.
0: Okay. And so what if we simplify that a little bit? Cause I understand it's a, It's a little bit of a complex issue in the way I outlined it. What if we make it a bit more simpler and it's, we're talking about seeds you've purchased. So not just like, you know, in the case of the dog walker, you know, it was a bit Mm -hmm. of a complex issue because it was given out under these specific Mm -hmm. conditions. But what if you just bought seeds from someone you don't know, you know, is that as far as you're concerned, is it free for all, whatever you want to do at that point?
1: Yeah. I mean, I actually, so when I grab seeds from different seed from different breeders, you know, at events like the Emerald cup, I'm, I'm I'm upfront about and asking say hey do you mind if I breed with this uh, to me that is a very important question for me to ask and although I've rarely had anyone ask me about that about any of my genetics um, some have come forward and asked and and I think that's kind of doing the do right rule and so I, I I you know I think it is something that if there is uh, a, a virtual like online relationship or an existing personal relationship with the, the purveyor of the seed I you know I, I think if you're trying to to do right in this industry it's a conversation that you should have as a breeder you know uh, do, do you mind if I work with your work with your you know genetics now I'm going to create something new I'm not going to redo what you've done right but so I, I, I think it's it's important to me, it's important to have that conversation with a breeder because, uh, you know, sometimes people do get a little chapped about people breeding with their gear and stuff like that and not, you know, and kind of staking ownership and not giving credit to the breeder of those root genetics.
0: So if we follow that same thought, you know, you reference what you got at the Emerald Cup and things like that. If mm-hmm. we check your IG, we can see nice little stash from the most recent Emerald Cup. What mm-hmm. do you plan to pop first? Mm-hmm.
1: So first is definitely the Burmese land race from coastal. Uh, I'm going to be doing a mail hunt with that. And then I was actually just recently gifted some Magna Rosa, which is a Brazilian from Brazilian sea company, the Magna Rosa land race, which oh, wow. I'm going to th- yeah, peel through some of those as well. Right now I'm kind of on this, I'm actually not kind of – I'm on a mail hunt right now, which I have to do very, very carefully in my small, smaller space. Um, but the other one that I would really be – there was uh, the Roadkill Ganny uh, from Matt Riot from Riot Seeds uh, was also one that I'm very interested in looking into that, that, that comes out of the, uh, they call it the heirloom Afghani. And I think that comes out of the project that maybe he and Bodhi did looking for roadkill skunk through all these various Afghani seeds. Maybe the, I think it was like a nine year project or something like that. And, um, they finally came up with one that truly is, they feel it's the roadkill skunk. So, uh, getting into that is going to be interesting. And, uh, what was the other one I was gonna do? Oh well, just because I have to. The the Granny Skunk from Dominion. ha! Uh-huh, you have to. <laughs> yeah, I have to. <laughs> yeah. I can't resist that one at all. No. And then chance. I've got. Yeah, yeah, no, 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 there isn't. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and and then we've got a couple of them. I did a little breeding this past summer with a Puckyah male. The Puckyah is one of the uh, Bob Hempo crosses
0: out at Coastal. Yeah, you just stole my next question. I was gonna say. Ah. Like, we also see you've been growing out the puck, yeah, from our friend Bob at Coastal. How do mm-hmm. you find this line? And more interestingly, in my opinion, is you know the puck or the skelly hash plant quickly mm-hmm. becoming one of the most sought-after cuts around. Do you like mm-hmm. it? And do you think it lives up to the hype in terms of what it brought as a parent to the cross? Okay. So,
1: funny thing about the puck. So, I know the puck from years in the past, and it was definitely very popular with some of the folks who were dealing with Kim back in the day, the Kim Dog Genetics, and some of the Virginia guys too that I knew, uh, very big up in New England. And when I, at the Emerald Cup in 2016, uh, I walked up to the Coastal booth and I saw that on their list. And I, it was the, one of the guys behind the booth, I said, oh, what do you guys know about the puck? And he said, well, let me get the guy who bred it and come talk to you I said okay and the guy comes up and he's like oh he's like hey I hear you want to talk about the puck and I was like yeah I, I, you know I breed with some of the chem genetics you know this was real popular in the chem family yada yada he's like yeah 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 he's like what chem genetics did you bring what would you breed and I said oh well you know I bred dog walker and the guy looks down at me and he says first words that come out of his mouth were DJ rich and DJ's our mutual friend and I looked up at him, and I said, Bob Hemphill. See, I hadn't seen Bob in 15 years. Yeah, wow. And so, you know, back when I knew him, he <laughs> had dreads and beard. And, you know, he's okay. clean shaven. <laughs> I was like, holy crap. So we had this kind of reintroduction after a 15-year gap, um, mm. and it was all over the puck. And so as far as the, the puck, you know, living up to its hype. Um, I can certainly say that the Kimovar that I went with from the Puck Yeah definitely has that hash plant structure, the way it grows, you know, so you can get some really nice nugs off of it. But it was heavily influenced from that NL1 male. The one I have has this kind of just straight up just about acetate nose to it. It's almost like rubber cement. It's really, really, really intense. Now, by the look of it, you know, it's, it's that kind of old hash plant. Look, it's not super frosty, you know, it's not caked and glistening, but man, the nose on that thing is just unmistakable. So the male that I went with actually had the same growth, very similar growth pattern to the female I selected. And then as much as you can get out of the stem rub, just about spot on with each other. So that male pollen was used, uh, uh, this past summer on some stuff so some new things coming down the pike from that but yeah that the the puck the puck is uh is an amazing plant uh, bob hemphill's puck yeah is definitely whew, out of this world at least what the one that i found and the, the actual the, the the selection that i made when i brought it to him uh, this past year at the Emerald Cup, uh, he was like, he's super stoked. He's like, I gotta come up and get that cut, which I thought was kind of funny.
0: <laughs> I think I actually got to try some of it. It had almost like this watermelon vibe to it.
1: Okay, so there was another one that has a little more watermelon side. There was two that I gave him, and one has a little bit. And that one actually was not super stable, so I've, I've, unfortunately, I've scrapped that one. The other one, like I said, is just uh, it's almost this is very interesting, like and I guess, I, you know, taking a step back, I guess you can get a little bit of watermelon out of the one we kept. But uh, that being said, you know, it's, it's an amazing plant. Uh, it's super vigorous. Uh, I can't say enough good things about it. Uh, it's definitely uh, become one of my new favorites. And I, uh, I I can't wait to explore some of these new crosses that it's providing
0: so, I don't know if you're purposely trying to not spill the beans, but what crosses did you make? <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, so, we did, let's see here. So, we did the puck yeah on the Chem 4, the puck yeah on the Biz, which is uh, Dog Walker's sister. We did puck yeah onto Dog Walker. We did puck yeah onto the Wook 3, which is the AWOG Forum Cut. Uh, those were the Puck Yeah dustings, and then we actually also worked with another male from another cross from Bob Hempill. That was the Fairfax four-way crossed with South Fork Seeds Sirius, which the Sirius is basically just a bunch of chems thrown back and forth on each other. Um, so the, we had a, a four-way uh, Sirius stud that just, just was beautiful in structure, and that one it was uh, used uh, to actually back cross or F2. And then uh, that also went on to the chem four as well.
0: Okay. And so which one are you personally most excited for?
1: To be very blunt, the biz and the puck. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's, yeah, that's the one. Um, you know, the business dog walker's sister, and she definitely yields a little more. She tests a little higher, and there's an inc- there's once it cures out, there's this amazing amount of limonene that comes out of that flower. Um, that's pretty spectacular. Uh, the gas is there. The woodiness is there. Although the gas and the woodiness seem to kind of flip flop on the biz, you know, on the dog walker, I feel like you get this like uh, kind of uh, cedar sandalwood on the inhale with you know loads of gas on the exhale, and this one you get uh, you know this kind of gassy on the inhale with the cedar sandalwood finish, but then there's this limonene thing happening in there that's you know once again it's one of those strains that the layers from a flavor evolve, you know, well after the exhale. And once again, you know, something that I'm always tuning for. So taking that, that, you know, that, that female and then throwing in this very kind of acrid astringent note to it. Uh, I'm, I'm hoping the sky's the limit for that one. Awesome.
0: So, if we just take a jump back to kind of some growing style questions, this is something I've been interested in for a while. What do you think is kind of the hierarchy or shall we just say the the order, you know, the list of what needs to be mastered in terms of a grower? I think the fundamental thing you first have to do as a grower is you have to learn to read the plant, not not on like the holistic level at like what a crazy good grower can do, mm-hmm. but on the most simple level, which is like when does it need water? I think that's the mm-hmm. first thing you learn to visually tell and then you, then you go from there. But anyway, put put that at the back of your mind for the moment. What, what's your list, you know? What do you think is the kind of the things you look to master? Because the underlying kind of, you know, how should I say, vein of this question is that people seem to want to skip the basics. How do you see all of this? Sure. No.
1: So, I really believe that the f- foundation to all of this begins with 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 observation. And you bring a very valid point of, you know, for example, something as simple as when does the plant need water? What does a yellowing leaf mean? And you know, asking these questions and answering them either through research or through a Q and A with someone who's a little bit more knowledgeable. But really, the you know, everything can kind of be cookie-cuttered for most growers. You know, a feed schedule can be provided, a lighting schedule you can look up in a book. You know, back back when I started, the, these resources weren't there. So there's so many more resources today that people can utilize to get them into those good growing practices. Uh, and it and it does start with the basics. I think a small, you know, at least rudimentary understanding of You know, what are the important nutrients, you know, your NPK, calcium, magnesium, you know, iron, sulfur, manganese, name a few, you know, and, you know, and and understanding at least for, you know, nitrogen, potassium, phosphorus, calcium, magnesium, you know, what those elements really do for the plant and why they're important at certain times and not as important at others. Uh, So, you know, just uh, having a rudimentary understanding of how the plant uses nutrients to me is a really, really good foundation. And it does take a little bit of brief reading to discover. Uh, It doesn't have to be super in-depth to have that kind of general understanding. You know, and after that, you know, and it really, you know, so much of this is, and I tell people this all the time is it's just experience based, you know, it's, it's facing these facing challenges and learning how to overcome them. Um, you know, when someone says that, you know, they want to like, well, they ask me, you know, all the time, how do you know all this? I get this question all the time at the shop. And I just, you know, it's it's 25 plus years of trying to understand it better. And constantly wanting to learn and to better my practice, to improve, you know, my results. Uh, it's this constant need and desire to, to do better. Uh, so, you know, for that, for the general purpose of, you know, where does it all begin? Well, it all begins with having that just basic understanding of plants and nutrients.
0: And so, mm-hmm. kind of a little extension of that idea is. On, on top of trying to continually get better at reading the plant, things like that, mm-hmm. how, how important is it to you to constantly be popping new genetics? Is that something you put value on, or do you think it's fine to just run the same thing again and again?
1: Well, you know, and I'll, I'll go back to what I was talking, I kind of touched on this earlier. I think it's very important, um, and I tell a lot of my customers this, to work, you know, your genetics with your nutrients to see how to. Best, you know, to get to that full genetic expression via the nutrients that you're using or you're provided, or the method, or however your whatever your approach is. So I, I think it's important if you want to, if you know, it depends what your goal is. If you want to, you know, see what a new strain does, you know, running at one time isn't a very good. You know, uh, litmus test for that. You know, I, you know, I believe a lot of the scientific method. You know, things need to be done at least three times to see. You know, to make a a, a, a conscious or uh, try to validate valuable. Method, yeah. yeah, to yeah, for validation. Yeah, absolutely. So it's it to me. You know, I encourage. And of course, this all goes back to like skill level too. You know, someone who's new, I'm not going to recommend skip around genetics every round. Uh, you'll never, you'll, it'll be such a slow, you know, such a longer, prolonged learning curve uh, with that approach. I think that, you know, this working with a specific strain or two, learning that genetic inside and out, if it's interesting to you, that's how you learn. Now, of course, if it's not interesting, you're going to bail on it anyway. But uh, they see, way too many folks who change genetics every round or change their nutrient, you know, regimen every round and not necessarily for the sake of bettering, but just to try something new. And I think that's a pretty haphazard way of going about, you know, cultivating cannabis for
0: sure. Without a doubt. So what do you think is the biggest kind of mistake you, you see from customers coming to the store? <laughs> Overwatering. <laughs>
1: Most common mistake. So many problems start, especially overwatering of starter plants, you know, or transplanted tr- plants. It's it's the beginning of so many issues, and uh, that's hands down the most common one. You know, I, I if the way I try to rationalize it with my customers, especially with a younger plant, you know, the, a lot of folks tend to overwater a clone. Um, significantly you know they'll put a small root clone into a larger you know vessel of dirt let's say a one or two gallon pot and want to you know keep hammering water to keep that pot saturated in the beginning and the problem with that is that you know compacted muddy media is now you know kind of choking off the oxygen supply making it harder for those roots to excel and to grow out and of course you slow down the root process you slow down the growth process slow down the growth process you're you know you're causing all kinds of you know, ripple effects throughout the life of that plant. You know, I'm a very, very big believer in starting off with really good, healthy plants. And if you start off with a not so healthy plant, then you know you can almost expect to face significant challenges throughout the life cycle of that plant.
0: So, one thing we've heard anecdotally from previous guests, Jeremy of Builder Soil, was that. Mm-hmm. He thinks there's certain plants which are just pretty good regardless of your skill level. Like as in like, you know, they tend mm-hmm. to come in oh, yeah. pretty good. He, he noted GG4 is one that he finds to fall in that category. Do you mm-hmm. find there's some that fall into that category? And, you know, like I guess these would be kind of like the more newbie friendly type stuff. What's, yeah. what's your recommendations?
1: Yeah, we, uh, the Bulletproof strains. Uh, there was, there's a strain that's been very popular here in Oregon. It's not as popular as it was uh, back in the early 2000s, but still around today called Green Queen. And green queen was a strain that, and, and back then, you know, we're we're, you know, teach, we're, actually teaching friends to grow and stuff like this. You could hand green queen to anybody and they would see marginal or decent success from the green queen, even on their first round out. And it was pretty much, you know, powdery mildew resistant. It could take an under or overfeeding, didn't really matter, fairly decent yield, um, I wouldn't say it was absolutely spider mite resistant because that certainly wasn't the case, but it certainly wasn't ground zero for infestations. Uh, so it, you know, it that particular plant was the one, you know, it was an, it was a newbie plant. You could give it to anybody and they could see some success. So yeah, I do believe that there are some of those bulletproof strains out there. Um, you know, I personally haven't worked with Gorilla, you know, excuse me, GG four, uh, so. <laughs> You know, I can't speak to the ease of that one, but I do see a lot of our novice growers, you know, through the store who grow it, um, and and they don't seem to be coming to me with too many headaches. Uh, you know, and and a lot of um, a lot of those, I, I feel like kind of Blue Dream is another one of those more current strains that's kind of bulletproof. It's pretty easy for folks to, you know, follow a simple nutrient regimen. Keep your lights on schedule. Keep the humidity where it should be. Temperatures where they should be, and that plant's going to turn and burn for most people. But then there's strains like you know, like some of those OGs, and even chem can kind of be this way. But they're a little bit more finicky and definitely require uh, a little bit more skill to
0: finesse that plant into its you know prime potential. Definitely. I, I feel like the chem is one of those ones for me where I mm-hmm. I think it's, it's it's lucky that plant didn't get thrown out in the sense that, you, sure. you know, if certain conditions aren't right, I just feel like it doesn't come out anywhere near its full potential. Like not, not obviously having a lot of experience growing the chem myself, mm-hmm. but just through the variants and I've got a lot of really chem dominant leading plants and you can see, mm-hmm. it, you know, like for example, for me at least, being in mm-hmm. Australia. The heat absolutely just destroys that plant. It doesn't Mm -hmm. perform well in the heat, and I think to myself, "What if that happened with Kem?" And he just ran it and was like, "This is just bunk. Let's just throw it out."
1: (laughs) Oh Lord, what a different world this would be! Uh, Yeah, no, I'm glad that wasn't the. the, I'm glad that wasn't the case with with his experience. And yeah, no, it's uh, it it you bring up actually a very valid point. Um, there was uh. A group down in Cali that ran, uh, I think it was Dog Walker and Scooby, in two locations. One was inland, right, on the uh, east side of the hills. And the other one was more in a coastal region. And the plants grown on the east side of the hills, more inland, so in that more kind of dry, drier climate of NorCal, didn't do that great. The ones at the coastal location were some of their highest yielding plants. So, yes, you know, it can make a a significant difference. And, you know, is that because, you know, of where the dog walker and scooby come from and they've just kind of naturally acclimated to that cooler, damper climate? Perhaps. I don't know. You know, the majority of it's cultivated indoors, so I kind of have a hard time believing that, but maybe there's something to it. But that happened, uh, that 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 test that was done down there, uh, run was, was, you know, it was hard to ignore the results. That's for sure.
0: So just as a bit of a random oddball question, what strain has been lost that either you had or that you knew of that you'd love to get back if possible?
1: My sugar cookies.
0: <laughs> I lost that one recently and that was a good one. That was
1: the one that was, uh, the, that one was the, uh, forum cut, Uh, the male or the selfing pollen that I collected onto a cotton candy kush. And it made this – the structure was still very much cookie in the flour, but the flavor was just – there was like blueberry and like a haze spice in there that was just freaking off the charts good to me and made phenomenal uh, bubble hash. (laughs) Uh, And that one, unfortunately, was lost recently to a – to a cloning mix up, a labeling issue. But, um, the other one, you know, it's interesting cause Bob brought it up <laughs> cause I remember this one too. He brought up the rapture from, oh, I think, yeah. Boy, uh, yeah. And that one was always this kind of never, I never, did not see it for very long and only saw it a couple times. But from what I remember of it, just everything about that was just about picture perfect you know, that one I do remember. And, that's, and it's interesting because I have some folks back east recently that were like, ah, oh, you know, if it's there, we'll find it, you know. So I put them to task on the raft But I have a feeling that one's probably been long gone. And I'm sure you know, Bob Hempel can <clears throat> speak more to that than I can. But um, that one was absolutely very special. And it was very short-lived in my experience. But that's one I'd love to see again. Uh if I could think of any others, you know, the real Trinity would be nice to see again. Yeah, okay. Not, you know, not the Trinity blueberry that everyone else has, but that old real t- Trinity that was, you know, almost velvety and it's, you know, and it's trichome production and it's just kind of that was another one of those kind of silver, gray, green plants that, you know, once you got, once you've, once again, once you've had it, just it's it leaves a mark on your palate and you never forget. That's why it's so easy now to pick out the imposters.
0: <laughs> you should, you should hunt down not so dog. I think he's got the real deal. Oh, I'll write that down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I try, That's I tried cool. it at the cup and it, it sounds exactly oh, really? like what you're describing.
1: <laughs> All right, cool. That's cool to hear,
0: man. Thank you. Yeah, no, check that out. I'm going to try to get him on soon. Um, What's interesting though, when you mentioned that rapture thing, I'm actually mm-hmm. going to get Hannah Bolt to come on soon. I didn't know this. She smoked more Rapture than anyone. Um, no way. Without, yeah, like without trying to give away all the details, essentially, the guy who had it with the source, mm-hmm. she was much closer to him than what Bob was. So she would kind of True. get first offerings before Bob did and so she ended up getting access to a lot of it.
1: Oh, wow. That's, that's pretty cool because, you know, mine had to trickle down from probably, you know, him to another friend to eventually to me. So... My, you know, what I was exposed to, like I said, was super limited but definitely very memorable. How fun for her to have that advantage though. Good for her.
0: That's <laughs> yeah. awesome. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I can't That's wait awesome. to get the rundown. It's, it's, yeah. it's mythical. So well, last couple of questions I've got are actually kind of more legalization-based ones. And I think you'd be a good source of this. In terms sure. of Oregon at least, do you view mm-hmm. legalization as having had a net positive?
1: You know, I was – I was more. I've always been more of a decriminalization than legalization rec, uh, regulation fan. You know, with legalization plus regulation, the inevitable will happen everywhere. Uh, it will provide opportunity for the few. It will eliminate the many factor. Uh, unfortunately, I think it's. You know, I've seen so many folks who were passionate. You know, for many years, kind of turn away from the entire industry recently. Um, shut down, you know, stop something that they've been doing for the last 15 or 20 years, some of them. Um, And I think they just get kind of jaded by the reality of of commercialization. And so, you know, it's kind of a careful what you wish for scenario for me. Uh, You know, this is this, it it doesn't happen. It didn't happen, of course, early on in Oregon, same thing in Colorado It's kind of like, you know, even back in Montana, when things were going on there for legalization, it was kind of the wild, wild west for a while. And, you know, the hustlers and outlaws and growers were all kind of, you know, making the moves to make the scene work, but eventually the states have to step in and institute regulation. And that, that ends that whole kind of Wild West situation and brings it into a, a very much more controlled environment. And what, you know, what you've seen is, you know, a couple of states, Oregon, Washington, uh, even in Colorado, have to kind of have these evolutions to the law because you know what was what made sense or what was uh, uh, found in good favor you know, six months ago. Now all of a sudden, for some reason, is not. So we have to change the law. We have to evolve, and emerging states are having that opportunity to see some of these other states make the mistakes along the way. And hopefully put forth, you know, their more strict legislation and restricting legislation uh, that much more easily, because you can say, hey, well, look here, what, here's here's what happened in these states, didn't work out there, so you know, we're gonna we're gonna follow suit, and to make start with these laws that are a little bit more restrictive. Um, so you know, I, it's a it's a mixed bag of emotions for me. You know, I love the fact that I can walk down the street with you know a few joints in my pocket or a bag of (laughs) of Top Walker, and I'm not going to get arrested for it. You know, I can have it in my car. I can drive around with the plants in my car, and nobody's going to pull me over for it. That, to me, is, you know, (laughs) amazing and mind-blowing, all at the same time. But also, you know, there's this whole thing lurking in the back, you know, in the the shadows of all this, of larger corporations making more of an impact than they have up into this point. And I don't mean, you know, the the Philip Morris's and stuff like that. You know, I don't, I'm not a big believer in that they want to convert their customers yet. Um, But there are large, you know, entities afoot. And that to me is, you know, the, to me, you know, whenever it's used to destroy the medical situation, um, that's the scary part to me. And that's you know, kind of what happened like in Washington, for example. Uh, like I hate I would hate it if they took away the Oregonians residents' ability to have a home grow. I think to me that would be uh, unfortunate. And that's something that's happened to our neighbors to the
0: north. Do you view that as the fundamentally paramount right we need to protect? I mean, I see that
1: as a date taking the, creating the opportunity to make more financial and more stable financial gain from the situation. Does okay. that make sense? You know, I mean, I, I really do. I, I think that it's, um, you know, cause when you, when you take away home grows, you're not just taking away, you know, that person or patient's ability to cultivate their own medicine, but you're also taking away that person's ability to, um, to go to their local retail store to go buy the grow equipment and the nutrients and the stuff, you know, it's, it's, it's had this incredible effect up in Washington where it's really disrupted uh, the retail, the hydro industry retail stores there. And so many of them have had to close after many, many years of operation due to the fact that home grows are no longer legal there. So, you know, to me, as long as, you know, everybody has their right to produce their own, and not being forced into a retail store to purchase cannabis grown by you know whatever cultivation group, um, then I'm okay with it. But as soon as you take those that that individual right away to produce and cultivate your own cannabis, um, that's a that's dangerous territory as far as I'm concerned.
0: I guess the reason why I asked that specifically is because the kind of medical option that's being rolled out in Australia, as much as a farce as I believe it to be, you could kind of boil it down to be the case that they don't want you to grow your own, but you've got to accept, you know, Philip Morrison's offering, whatever that may be, so to speak. Would you right. would you settle with that or would you just be like, no, I cannot get down with that?
1: I, yeah, no, I, that to me is, um, that that to me is, is not the best path moving forward for a medical program at all. I think that it's, you know, I think for a lot of folks, if they have the you know, if someone had the opportunity to grow their aspirin yeah, what you can with cannabis, right? Uh, they probably would. you know? Um, I think that cannabis, because it is such, you know, it can be absolutely personalized medicine in the sense that you know people can find specific genetics that target, whatever they want to whatever they're dealing with specifically uh, that you know if the corporate groups that are mass producing whatever flower or concentrate they're producing doesn't have that particular genetic then that you know individual may not find that combination of secondary metabolites that hit all the right spots. And I think that's very restrictive and unfair to a patient, you know, in the, you know, in the medical days here, even, you know, even today, we have folks who are constantly, you know, those are the folks that are trying to find that strain that really target and best affects, uh, you know, whatever condition they're dealing with or, or, you know, gives them the best result. So I think that's unfortunately very restrictive and doesn't necessarily allow for, that personalized medicine to occur. I mean, yeah, you can hit for some folks, but, you know, if, you know it's, it's to me, it's an unfortunate way to pursue the, the medical.
0: So, Oregon specifically has been criticized in the past with having what some might regard as, you know, kind of some laws that are just maybe you'd say a bit pedantic i guess like most notably the whole naming thing like you can't call certain strains what uh. the they called because it's deemed too appealing to kids girls Scout cookies cinderella 99 mm-hmm. bubble gum you can kind of see where they're coming from but where do you sit on that so
1: it's interesting, a uh, 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 dispensary just, I think, two weeks ago got it. Uh, got a, we got our first cease and desist for using Scooby snacks <laughs> <Jesus>. <laughs> at a dispensary. So, you know, hey, look, I get it. I do. Um, I, I, I think one of the things you have to have as a state that's pursuing legal cannabis is this appearance, right, that you're hitting all the things that the federal government said you shouldn't do, right? And making these uh, and avoiding. Uh, uh, track you know, avoiding marketing to children is something the federal government has absolutely spelled out. And so it's a, it's a, it's a fear response from the state. Like feds say, we should do this. Okay, well, let's do this one little thing because this won't have a huge negative impact on anyone really. Um, but we've got to kind of play by their rules to have, to make the appearance that we're doing it right, or we're doing it by whatever, you know, Protocol, they sp- spit out. Now, federal government hasn't spit out very many protocols, but that was definitely one of them. Um, so, you know, does that make me change the name of my strain? No, absolutely not. But does it mean that the next time you go into the dispensary, it might say S Snacks? Yeah, probably. <laughs> does that make the flower any worse? No. <laughs> you know, it's that whole name thing. You know, it's it's still it's still going to be the same. You know, genetic that I know and love. So, yeah, you know, it's I, I get why the state did it. Uh, to me, it's it's kind of a, you know, it's sacrificing a pawn, so to
0: speak. Okay, and so I guess you know, kind of wrap up this whole idea. Mm-hmm. What do you think was the most unexpected negative thing to come out of legalization? <laughs> this
1: will be pretty unanimous with everyone. The just the plummeting of the value of cannabis. I don't yeah. think anyone, we all knew it would drop some, but I don't think anybody expected this, this big of a tumble in the market. No way. That one was, you know, that's the one that's hit everybody, I think, the hardest. It's unfortunate, though, a result of the greed that ensued as soon as legal cannabis was a thing here. You know, uh, I think that states and would do well by not allowing out-of-state investment as they go online to keeping those businesses to state, you know, resident businesses. Uh, you know, everybody, you know, I can't tell you how many, and we still see them, I mean, we still see 100 120 lighters going up all the time. And then when you look at the glut that we had back in December, you know, over a million pounds in our rec system. What, is, what good is you know, 120 new lights going to do for our state? I don't know. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's the, the pricing. It's just, it's just made it very, very difficult for extremely talented, committed cultivators to stay in a profitable game. It's really hard right now. And you have to be so con, con, co, so focused on the bottom line that, you know, you start to see people slipping on things like inputs and, you know, moving. it's why all of a sudden salts are so much more attractive to some of these, you know, uh, to some of these commercial growers. Because so is, it, is, it, is, it, it is cheaper. Now, yeah, there's some organic practices that get close, but when you get down to someone who's actually mixing their own raw salts, it's, it's, it's tough to beat that financially. Now that's a pretty. That's about as low as you can go on input cost. And like I said, as the price plummets, that focus on input cost becomes more and more significant. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think there's, you know, there's a lot of things that are getting glossed and passed over um, because of the cost. And um, like I said, it's just that's that's the one thing that's most unfortunate.
0: Absolutely as an individual you know not in oregon obviously but in say an illegal environment what do you think Mm -hmm. is your best advice to someone in terms of what they can do on the individual level because and i guess what i mean by that is not looking for an answer that's like try to change the law because that's not really something you can do as Mm -hmm. an individual like you can try to be more politically active sure but Mm -hmm. you know what i mean more so looking on like what what's something everyone can do in your opinion that will help collectively be a responsible grower
1: and, 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 and not just responsible in your growing practices, but just how you conduct yourself in life. You know, don't, don't be a beacon of light for attention (laughs) for the wrong attention, Uh, be a beacon of light for the right attention. And I think that goes to, you know, you know, Using not using products that will potentially slowly kill your customers, um, you know, just it's it's, it's a reputation building. It's like building a good reputation for yourself as a responsible individual. Uh, you know, even in the uh, the illicit market side of things, uh, will help to paint a better picture for the collective. You know, so it starts on an individual level, but what it does is it's, you know, if, if that responsibility is shared and practiced between many individuals, then when states do start turning and looking at what's going on, uh, perhaps there are some kind of pillars in the industry at that point that can cross over and become leaders in the industry, of the legal industry. I think I've seen that here, you know, we've definitely seen that here in Oregon, where You know, some very well, you know, respected and good, uh, honest uh, cultivators, uh, you know, came out of the shadows and stepped into the limelight and became leaders for the state, and I think that that's something that the state pays attention to, Um, and you know, and I think it also is can be very inspirational to those who haven't gotten there yet, but you know, be be responsible, keep keep your house in order, Um, you know, and do things the right way um don't uh don't don't do people wrong it's uh definitely come back and bite you yeah without a doubt (laughs) I say, really it's not profound advice i know but it's you know it's i guess if there's one thing that i say that i kind of try to carry around with me all the time is you know just try to do things the right way do people the right way too
0: yeah i mean maybe not profound but nevertheless it still needs to be said so i guess that says something sure (laughs) so final little section a little quick Mm -hmm. fire questions so these ones you can be as shorter as long as you want so currently who's the best grower you know pig farmer hell yeah shout out pig farmer
1: (laughs) yes indeed (laughs) He, he definitely um, – and I, and I base it purely on his Scooby Snack results. Uh, he, he crushes that strain as good or if not better than anyone that's ever run it that I know. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of his work. Um, I definitely am a fan of Green Bodie's work here in Oregon. He's another phenomenal cultivator and a phenomenal breeder
0: at that. Next mm-hmm. one is, what's your prediction for the hottest strain of 2018?
1: <laughs> um whatever comes out with the biz and that puck yeah i hope um no if uh, the, the hottest strain you know this is this is such a weird question for me because i don't necessarily pay attention too much to this kind of stuff but um you know i it looks like uh via on instagram it looks like archives has some cool things in the works you know uh mean gene always has neat stuff coming down the pike uh the uh, gene finder out at wilcox farms uh, even though you know he's exploring other people's genetics uh, he's doing pheno hunting like no other so i wouldn't Im- i can't imagine that we wouldn't see something amazing come out of his his stable uh so you know, there's and i you know even the guys at heroes you know those guys are constantly breeding turning out good stuff so i don't know if i could pick one particular Uh, strain or something like that, but, you know, there's at least a short list of some breeders and uh, groups to certainly pay attention to. Um, You know, I'm sure something will come out of the Cookies family or the Terp Hogs or whatever, Third Gen or whatever, you know, I'm sure something really big will come out of those groups, but, you know, the ones that I mentioned prior are the ones that I'm really paying attention, and of course, whatever Coastal does.
0: Yeah. Love well, this. that ties into yeah. the next one sure. if you could only pick one land race which one would it be so,
1: well for me because of the effect that I really am looking for in cannabis uh, it'd have to be a land race Afghani and I can't say a particular one but uh, land race Afghani for me
0: yeah I'm in the same boat I love sativas, but nothing beats a good indica.
1: No, I'm, I'm with you. I'm already a little high strung, so too much sativa can, you know, make me a little <laughs> yeah,
0: of a little bit 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 of I mean, and,
1: and it has a close tie to here in Portland and some very close friends of mine. Um, but it's just one that, and, and, and loads of people love it around here. I just, it's one of those ones that I just don't get. I don't get it. It's, uh, there's just not much appeal to me personally. But once again, we're dealing with palates and stuff like that. And, you know, some people like, you know, I don't know, escargot and some people don't. And some people like apples and some people think they taste awful. So, <laughs> so you know it's it, so I get that part of it, but yeah, that's one. That's the one strain for me that I just I've never understood.
0: Okay, so opposite end of the spectrum, desert island weed. You can only pick two strains for the rest of your life. What are they? Hmm. Well,
1: the dog walker is definitely with me for sure. And if I was going to couple that with something else, the lemon diesel.
0: Ah, uh, nice. So, so what's, what's the lineage on that one?
1: The lemon D? I don't know. That's kind of one of those mystery strains that um, you know, nobody I've, – I've never gotten the full lineage. Um, in fact, there's only a few people who don't even cultivate it anymore. Uh, we called it the lemon D here in Oregon. It seems like it came out of the Eugene scene. Um, But just just a phenomenal, just amazing, just sour lemon flavor that just resonates for days on the palate. I love it.
0: Indoor or outdoor? You can only have one. Indoor. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) There you
1: go. (laughs) Sorry, one word answer there, but yeah. Yeah, Yeah, no, that's,
0: that's it. That's it. Man after my own heart. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. This one, you know, probably going to be something you don't sell, but what's the worst grow product you've ever seen? (laughs) The
1: BioWave.
0: God, I don't even know what that is.
1: It's something that resonates acoustics and then it's supposed to get rid of bugs and increase your yields. And we sold a couple already this week. It's weird. Um, It's been around (laughs) for... I don't know it's been around for 10 years now 15 years in our industry and it's just you know it's just one of those junk science lots of uh you know no scientific data to back it up devices and i'm sure some people you know see something who knows what but you know just anecdotal evidence at best and kind of touted it's, it's another one of those things that look if this thing was so groundbreaking and it was you know increasing everybody big ag would have these things all over the place and guess where you don't see them big ag you know, if something's really effective those guys will have it first always
0: <laughs> so final question yes what is the best thing to happen to cannabis period since you've been involved in it medical cannabis medical cannabis for sure that was
1: absolutely uh, a huge turning point. I know for myself, um, and a huge turning point for a lot of individuals that I've been involved with now for you know a decade plus. The it it it, it gave it finally a, a little bit of uh, validation for the rest of the for the rest of the country and for the rest of the world, for that matter. So, uh, the, the explosion of medical cannabis is definitely probably, in my opinion, the best thing to come out of it since I've started.
0: Yeah. What a great answer. So I think Mm -hmm. that probably does just about wrap it up. Did you have any comments or shout outs you wanted to make?
1: Um, well, I mean, obviously I want to shout out to, if I can, to my store roots, garden supply in Portland, Oregon. I definitely want to give a shout out to BioBiz and, uh, there's a few of you out there, Bob Hemphill pat out at heroes pig farmer uh you know a couple others i've probably forgotten but uh those are good friends of mine and great cultivators and great people to know so surround yourself with good people people that's the best advice i can give
0: awesome so thanks again for coming on
1: Uh, thank you so much for having me too it's been a pleasure and uh you know i look forward to reading all your comments here in the near future (laughs)
0: Big 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 thank you to the Scooby Snacks Master himself. Why Eye. I thank you for joining us again? Huge shout out to our Patreon supporters, as always. You guys are the lifeblood of this show. Seeds so here now. Organic gardening solutions, 420 Australia. The three amigos. What can I say? We'll see you.